Hey everyone, welcome to We Weren't Friends in High School, the podcast where I reunite with former classmates from Wizik in High School in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I'm Brad Corbett, class of 2001. My thanks to Chris Hoagland, episode 238. It's available in the archives. Make sure you go check that out everywhere you get your podcasts, as well as youtube.com slash redshirtplayer. It's filled with lots of inspirational quotes to get you through the day. Also, follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at We Weren't Friends in High School. Like, subscribe, follow, rate the podcast anywhere you're listening to this. It helps. I'm supposed to start telling people this. All right, this week, my guest is Hank Jones, class of 2002. I've known Hank since my elementary school days at Madison Avenue, but it wasn't until my senior year where we shared a TV lab class that Hank and I got to know each other a little bit better. I've talked on the podcast in the past about trying my hand in Los Angeles, but around the exact same time, Hank was on a similar path trying to make his way as a writer. He's been working really hard in the industry, and you can see some of his work on shows Grownish, Family Reunion, and Motown Magic. Hank's latest project is a little show you may have heard of known as Bel Air, the dramatic reboot of our childhood favorite, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. It debuts this Sunday, February 13th on Peacock. So let's get into it. This is a really fun talk. Here's my conversation with class of 2002's Hank Jones. Dog, I'm nervous as fuck. This is crazy. You are why? <laughs> I'm mad nervous. Yeah. You this kidding is, me? Yeah, I mean, I got the beer. I can't really do hard looking like that, but um, got the beer going because yeah, I was I was surprised. Like, oh shit, I'm, I'm nervous to do this. But it's just oh. cool. <laughs> All right, let me let me level up. Let me get a let me get a little drink going here. All right. But now where where do you live at? I know you're in the city. I'm in South Philly in the Italian market. Okay. Very cool. I feel like you've been there for a minute now, right? Yeah, I've been here for like eight years. Okay. Yeah. It's a little, little different from, from South Amblin, I imagine. It is. You know, it's it's funny. Like, I don't, I had never really had a desire to go back once I left. And that was part of like me going to Temple was just, I love the idea of just kind of being able to get anywhere, especially like these parts of Philly that I've always kind of loved, you know, mainly food, uh, food centralized, but just I love being able to get out here on the street and walk around and, you know, versus in the suburbs where you have to drive everywhere and all that and yeah. um, everything kind of happened. Well, before COVID, everything in the suburbs would generally happen at people's houses or uh, but here in the city, there's just a lot of just different things to check out. And I love walking and being, you know, other than work, I never drove. Mm-hmm. when i was around here prior to covid now i never drive but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can just like stumble into stuff that's um it's, it's i feel the same way like being in la my wife and i were living in uh Lemur park for a couple of years which is like the harlem of, of la and like yeah i'll just go walk the dog and find like oh there goes the farmer's market and oh then it got some live music at this coffee shop you know and um it was, it was dope and, uh, but yeah we weren't we weren't having that in ambler too much when we were when we were running around uh, did you grow up in, it's funny because like, I remember you kind of just all time, all my time, all my life, uh, mm-hmm. through school, but you were one grade below, right? Yeah. Um, so class of O two, um, and of course always knew your mom from Madison, mm-hmm. uh, during my, maybe my, some of my most troubled years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because we never had classes together probably until my senior year when we had TV lab. That's right. Uh, I feel like that's, that's maybe the only time we actually had to like talk during school time. 
Yeah. Um, so I never really knew a lot about your life outside of that. Um, you know, your dad was a pilot and that was yeah. like, those were the, the, the few things that I really knew. So, um, but did you grow up in Ambler from the jump? I did. I did. Um, and a quick sidebar, which the thing I love about this, this podcast is, uh, which I think you're really onto something is, you know, we all had this idea of who a classmate was when we went to school. I'm like, you, I've, I've known you since I was in kindergarten at Madison. You know what I mean? Like you've always been there. I remember the WWF magazines and you bring your action figures to, to school and shit. And like, I remember we had, we both had the Ric Flair one where Ric Flair had the pictures of Elizabeth and Randy Savage was mad. And it was like the, the lead up to WrestleMania 8. I remember looking at it. We were looking at each other's magazines and just saying, I remember that shit. Like you were always there. But when I started listening to their podcast, like I ain't no brand at all. Like at, at all. So which was, and whether it was Eric Coxon or Michael, uh, Claiborne, like, I'm just like, damn, these are people who I just was around. And I just had no idea what was going on in their lives. So it was really dope uh, to hear that. But of course, I started thinking about my own shit. And um, like, yeah, I grew up in, in Ambler and uh, initially on was a Spring Garden Street, which was like walking distance from like the newsstand that was right there in Candida's. Yeah. So that, that little half a block was like my, my world for a few years, you know? Um, I remember before I could even count money, you know, I'd go to the newsstand and put the the two uh, quarters up on the counter, like, yo, let me get a bag, bag of Skittles. You know what I mean, and I remember the one time they're like, this isn't enough. And I went back, I'm like, mom, you said it wasn't enough. She's like, no, you need the big ones with the ridges, not the small, smooth ones. You got, these are quarters. So I'm like, all right, bet, big ones with the ridges. I get my, get my Skittles. And if I wasn't there, I was at Candida's getting water ice and playing Ninja Turtles. You know what I mean? And like with my sister and remember Theo Thompson would be out there and Justin Newman and like it, it was, I loved being just in, I feel like Amber proper, you know? And at that time, I don't know if you knew this, but I was held back. I was held back in kindergarten. You fucking believe it. How do you fail kindergarten? But I, I missed my, <laughs> my first stint at, at kindergarten was at Bluebell. Hmm. And I was doing like a, it was like a half day kind of kindergarten, yeah. you know, which I, which I think is what fucked me up because I'm like, this is a half day. This isn't a real school. I don't got to do this shit. So I never really got into that groove of like, okay, this is what it is. I got to go to school. I, I could every day. I was like, do I have to go back there? Really? And, um, but yeah, I was at Bluebell and who was in my class? I actually thought about this beforehand, like, uh, Stephanie Schneck, uh, the boy, Justin, who played on Wissakin's basketball team. He was in your grade. He, had, he always had like a knee brace on. Hammond. Um, yeah. Justin. And who else? My best friend was, uh, Fraser Reichner. Yeah. Yeah, that was my guy. And um, it was weird because then I'd be in high school and I'd see his mom when I was going to side. She'd be like, Hank. And I'd, I'd stop down to talk to her mom. I hadn't seen her in years, but we that, that's how close we were back then. And who else? Tara Carlin. Um, yeah, so and then I'd go to Madison after that. And it's just like, all right, got to do got to do this kin kindergarten shit over again. Start over. And um, it was all day. So I got into that groove. And yeah, then we had the whole Madison Avenue run. And um it's, it's, it's pretty cool getting to high school and being around Madison Avenue people because you always had this, like, you do this nod kind of thing, like, all right, yeah, I see you, Madison Avenue. Even people that you stop talking to or, you know, how you go different directions, there's still that that mutual respect because, you know, you're from Madison Avenue. Yeah, you know? it's funny. I, I always had that. It, I, I went both ways. One, I had this just hatred for the fact that so many people knew me from the time I was five because I felt like, 
you know, when you have conflict with people that doesn't go away, no matter what it is, no matter what anyone's going through, you kind of remember everything about that, or at least I did, remembered everything about that person that I was privy to your entire life. The kid that pooped his pants, the kid that, the kid that got kicked out of class, the kid that got beat up in a fight. For, yeah. You know, you remember that all through, and and I just hated that idea of um, not being able to change who you were. But at the same time, that kind of feeling at, at there were specific times growing up when, like, you you come across people that you know and you've known for so long that kind of has like that good feeling of I don't know sameness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember. Meeting up with, I, I don't even know anybody off the top of my head, but it'd be like if you're in a random class with somebody you haven't seen or haven't talked to in forever, but if you were tight in Madison, we would legit be there be like, yo, how's your how's your mom doing? Like, cool. Like, your brother get over that thing? Yeah, yeah, you're all right. And then you kind of go your separate ways. But it's like just that acknowledgement, like, yeah, we know each other. So one of the things, that was one of the things that when I wanted to do this podcast originally was like, I used to think about a lot was what happens to those relationships, those people you were friends with in second, third grade, that all of a sudden by like seventh, eighth, ninth grade, you're not friends with those people anymore. And I guess, I guess like everyone's friends, right. When you're in those grades, because you have to give the birth, you have the birthday celebration cupcakes for everybody. You generally like, you're supposed to invite most of the people to your birthday parties, um, outside of school, Valentine's, everyone gets a card in the class. But then like, once you become, you know, 11, that shit all goes away and it's like oh none of these people actually like me when they're not supposed to <laughs> it's it's weird it's like everything was cool i mean i always hated school i never had a need for school i couldn't wait for it to be over but it was manageable <laughs> for a while and then you get to sixth grade started going a little left it was like okay this is still semi-normal but i don't know what it is about seventh grade but it's like you come in that first day and it's like they just spray you down with assholiness and <laughs> everybody's a fucking asshole. And I'm like, damn, like what what happened? It's like everybody's trying to just step on the next person just to lift themselves up. It was a weird seventh grade was weird, dude. And um, eighth grade wasn't any better. It was like, you know, I had my friends and everything, but uh, I think you're trying you're starting to kind of find your lane a little bit. Not really. And then certain friends are into things that you're not really into. Like for me, my, my focus started to shift towards girls a little bit more. My certain crop of friends were still into video games. So it was just kind of, I found myself going a different way. Um, but then by ninth grade, it was, everything was divided. Like it was friends that I st- did have, they was just kind of like, oh, sorry, can't really roll with you anymore. And um, you've talked a lot on this podcast just about kind of the, uh, the racial racial makeup of the school and how race is a factor in it. And it was very much like a factor for me. And I didn't understand at first, like why certain friends of mine, I wasn't really banging with, you know, and, and, and it was mutual. I, I kind of went my way and they went theirs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cause I, I do know ninth grade was when I started hanging out with predominantly black people, but all through middle school, it was all white people. Cause you know, I just like, whatever your pod was, that was your life. Right. I mean, every, your classes, even in elementary school, it was, it was never like a bunch of black kids in my class. It was always like me and one other person. So that's who you're friends with. Um, but it shit just started getting weird. Um, and by ninth grade, it was just like clear to me, like, that's I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm gonna go hang out with black people now. Um, now, was your was your middle school friend experience? Was that like kids 
actually going to their house, playing with them outside of school? Or was when you talk about like friends, like, especially with the white kids, was that just in the hallways, in class, stuff like that? Uh, a lot of them was in school and like, yeah, I would go to parties and stuff in, in middle school. And, uh, but for, I, I spent a lot of time with myself just watching movies. Like I'd go to movie world on, on the weekend and just get like two movies and just, and go to Wawa right there where I know he used to work. I'd get my sex and that was it. I'd just be watching movies every weekend. And then just at the random time, there'd be like a party to go to, you know, but it wasn't a lot. I went out every weekend, especially in middle school. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it was just me uh, just watching movies. But I know all, my boy Aubrey lived like basically on the other side of the tracks from me. And so we we were always tight, but we wouldn't hang out a lot in middle school. But we'd link up because he's kind of a friend from Madison. Right. We ride bikes, see each other, hang out tough for like a week. And then it'd go months again without seeing him. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, I spent a lot of time to myself just just watching movies and TV shows. Did you have a, a favorite? Uh, let's see. Like in middle school, favorite movie? I think Out of Sight. Out of Sight was the big one. That was the one where I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I, w- I want to do this for a living. You know, Out of Sight. Is that George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez? George Clooney's J Lo. Wow. Um, yeah, that was that was the one. That and the movie Scream. Scream was like the first movie where I really noticed dialogue, and it like hit me like, yo, how do you make a slasher flick? But it's so funny and. Um, all the the pop culture references and that and out of sight blew my mind because it was just nonlinear, and um, I just remember this one scene with J Lo and this black woman, and I was like, I don't know who this black woman is, but she's gonna be a star. Like she is stealing this scene, and it was Viola Davis. You wow. know, nobody knew who she was then, but that little five minute scene, I'm like, God damn, that was brilliant. Prior to that, did you want to do or be anything else? Was there another strong pull for you just as a kid? Yeah. pie in the sky wanted to do wanted to be an athlete anything like that no i mean yeah everybody wanted you know like, i'm like i like ball but i knew i wasn't gonna, that wasn't going to be a lane for me i was never the, the star athlete not anywhere close to it so i'm like that ain't it um but don't, all i ever really cared about was watching movies you know that's um i went back and found that old shady grove kind of yearbook that we had and i looked at we had to list like our what we wanted to be when we grow up and i put movie credit you know what I mean? so wow. it was always it was always movie related um, I just didn't know what, I never thought that what I'm doing now was even possible, you know, like coming from, from Ambler and, you know, we just didn't know anybody who was in that realm. And, and the only frame of reference we really had was, or two people were Brandon, mm-hmm. uh, Brandon Deese and then Mark Pinchotti, you know, and Brandon was, was making short films, TV shows, that senior class show. I still think about him and amazed that an 18 year old pulled that off. And at the time I'm looking at that, like, oh, I'm never going to be that. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's not uh me at least not right now uh, so i just never thought that it was a, a possibility but i always loved writing too and always did well with english and shout out to miss mccracken <laughs> i loved the interview with her but uh she was a big part of uh, me just thinking like well maybe maybe writing maybe that's a lane for me you know did you ever dabble i mean you you were watching movies but you know so for me same right it was some sort of i didn't know that was a job that you could go for or do growing up young, but I was wanted to be in entertainment of some sort. Right. So when yeah. I was like 10, uh, I started going to modeling school in Philly. I remember you talking about that. I was yeah. And doing like runway stuff, but also acting yeah. and, you know, go to like a convention where you, you compete against kids your own age and like 
you read scripts and and compete right and i win that and i think and i'm going to auditions in new york to be on like all that and i don't get any of them right but mm-hmm. and then i'm doing the school plays you know the whole time thinking this is what you do you you act so i'm doing the school plays in middle school and then and the and the musicals and and high school going on and doing the musicals were you attempting at any point growing up just as a kid and i went to like drama school or drama camp uh in the summer at temple ambler uh for a couple years did you at any point like do anything in entertainment growing up did you try and dip your toe into anything nothing like at all dude like i'm listening to you say this i'm like god damn i wish i would have had a conversation with you back then because now looking back yeah i wish i would have gone to like a performing arts school or something Mm. i mean or just explored that a little bit more i mean Everything works out how it's supposed to, but uh, yeah, I wish I would have just had that that confidence or uh, push to to explore that at least to know that it was an option. It wasn't even a, a thought of mine, you know. Like I would write like little short films, like little kind of slasher things. I told you because off a of screen, I started just writing um, little horror shorts that me and my cousins were were going to shoot, but that never materialized. But I was writing the scripts, and my grandfather let me hold his camera, so we just started shooting shit. Um, but that's that's about as far as it got, you know. Well, that's not see, I never even had a like a, a camera growing up. So that wasn't like I was always just the I had audio recording. So like that would be my only expression of of yeah. art, like at home to be able to do stuff. Um, at what point did you realize that there was a career that could be had somehow in? Well, you said that you were very good or you were drawn to like writing. English was more of your thing. Was that at what point does that start to? Because that's what you went to college for, right? Yeah, yeah, I was an English major, and uh, I got my, my undergraduate, my graduate degree in that. And the undergraduate was like film and media studies, so I was still kind of flirting. You know what I mean, with, with okay. Hollywood and everything. And but my master's was in teaching and writing literature, and I was working at a, a tax publication, like reporting on tax news, because I figured I like writing journalism. You know, that feels practical. I was always trying to find practical ways of writing. You know, and uh, just getting my grad degree and. English with teaching, because that's what you do with an English degree, you teach, you know. Um, so I was working at this tax publication with dreams of getting to the Washington Post, you know, because uh, I was living in the D.C. area. And I realized, you know what, this this shit is boring. Like, it's fucking tax news. It's boring as hell. And I don't think the Post would be that much better if I even get there, you know. And I was finishing up my degree, and I'd had a terrible breakup with my, my college girlfriend, and, you know, this is the one I thought was going to be it, you know, we're kind of planning our lives together and it ended terribly. And it was I wasn't getting over it. It was a couple of years. I'm like, I need to get the hell out of this area um, because this just ain't this ain't working. And I had been writing scripts as a hobby up to that point, but not really. You know, I was like writing them in a Word document. I had like script writing for dummies next to me. It was more of a pipe dream. Um, but one day I was watching The Office and it was my favorite show at the time. And I was just like, I can do this. Shit. Why can't I just go? go write for a living, you know? And what really did it, I had like this, um, I bought like the Office Season 4 Collector's Edition DVD. Yeah. Case, which was like a Dunder Mifflin box. It had like a Dwight Schrute bobblehead, which is sitting right here with my Dundee Award. And But it had like this mini script of like the dinner party episode from Season 4. And I remember like flipping through it. And that was really the moment. That's when I was like, oh, this is a job. Like, this is something I can go do. And I've been reading scripts online like through simplyscripts.com, but something about holding that script in my hand, I was just like, man, fuck it. I can just go do this. So after I got my degree, I uh, quit my job, packed my car and, and just drove to LA. 
you know, and I had been visiting LA the past few years. Like I had to go there for work because I was reporting on a, a tax conference in Anaheim and stayed with Brandon for a couple of days and I like, went to Rock the Bells and shit and saw like most stuff in Nas, which was amazing, you know. Yeah. And went back again after I had this epiphany, went back in like January of 2010 with the idea like, okay, if I like it, I'm going to move here. And I loved it. I mean, so I was like, that's it. I spent the rest of 2010 finishing up my degree, had a ball that summer, just really going all out on the East Coast just because I knew I was about to leave. And then I, I drove to L.A. and like that September and lived with Brandon for like a month or two and then got my own spot in Glendale and just started grinding, you know. Hmm. Um, There's so much in that that I want to get back to. <laughs> I know. I was going fast. <laughs> Um, if I can go back to high school, yeah, yeah, let's take it. Did back. you, did you, um, did you think that like writing was a like? At what point did you think that that could be your job, or or did or you thought you could go to college for writing or English or communications or when did you start zeroing in in on that, or were you zeroing in on anything? I was zeroing in on nothing. I, I mean, again, I hated school. Uh, and I was having a good time, like uh, not so much junior year, but senior year. Uh, me and my cousin Dave were having a great time. So it was like, like school, but classes were getting in the way. <laughs> you know what I mean, so I wasn't really thinking. I knew I was going to go to college and I got into college, but just that whole run, I was just, I was getting good enough grades to keep my parents off my back. And I just had zero interest in school. And it's funny because now I think about these teachers at pivotal moments telling me and telling the class, like, Yo, you need to pay attention to this. I remember Mr. Gallagher, I'm a biology teacher. He was like, look, 30 years ago, I could tell you if you don't do well in school, you're not going to go to college. She's like, I can't say that anymore. He's like, because now there's there's a fungus tech in Montana that'll take you. It's like, but your goal shouldn't be fungus tech. So I heard that. So I was like, all right, let me let me kick it up a little, a little notch. I'm not in Montana. Um, so I always did like good enough just to, you know, get into college, get my parents off my back, that kind of thing. But I had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. When I first went to college, it was like communications and advertising, you know? Uh, and then I had like a English professor my first, like my freshman year who uh, we were just doing like themes and essays and shit. And I, w I was doing really well. And she was like, yo, you need to think about writing as a career. She's like, you, you have some like serious talent. And that's what kind of got the ball rolling. Then I transferred schools, transferred to George Mason and changed my major to, to English, you know, but it was like that, that professor and, that freshman year who really got me thinking about, about writing. Cause I had always enjoyed it, but I never thought again, like, like me, a writer, like chalk it up to like poor self image. I don't know what it is, but I just never thought I could do it. And where was your freshman year at? I went to Jacksonville university. It was my dad's school. And we were in Jacksonville and just went there for a visit. And I was just like, eh, this is fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. wasn't really a thought out thing. Uh, but then once I was there and I hated it, that's when I really started thinking, like, maybe I ought to find a school that's actually good for me and, like, I can do something with. Uh, and then transferred to George Mason in Northern Virginia. But it wasn't until I got that, that college girlfriend, that was when everything, like, clicked. It was like, oh, I need to do well in school so I can get a good job so I can provide for my family. And that every, I finally saw more than six inches in front of my face. But it took that, that relationship to get there, you know? You mentioned uh, eighth grade was maybe the, the point where like you started separating from some of your, your friends yeah. in middle school. Um, and that's something that I always kind of talked about was I felt like was a Hicken was so mature yeah. um, as far as like partying and drinking and drugs and sex. And I was so removed from that world. 
um was eighth grade was like kind of like your start of dating you said what was like your party i mean you said you would go out to parties here and there but like you know as far as like i don't know the dating world being 13 14 years old what's that like for you oh man dating well it's funny um i just brought this up the other day because somebody posted a picture i hadn't i'd never seen before on instagram i was like oh that's my first that was my first girlfriend and it was Sixth, sixth grade, and this is kind of the first time I realized, oh, I have no idea what women are thinking. Mm. Uh, I went through the whole school year. We were in class and didn't even know, wasn't really checking for her. Not that she was unattractive or anything. It was just she was on the other side of the classroom. Didn't know she was checking for me. But in the yearbook, she, I remember she wrote like, hey, what's up? Hang, hit me up sometime and threw me the number. I was like, yo, oh, she really just, she threw me the number. So I, I called her. She told me she, she liked me all year. I was like, word? I'm like, okay, should we go on a date? <laughs> she was like, yeah, let's go on a date. So I took her to um, Twister. It just came out. So I, I took her to see Twister. Yeah. And um, Yeah. Went to see Twister. I was mad nervous and watched the whole movie and wasn't really watching it because I was watching her hand because I'm like, all right, I got I to gotta hold her hand. I'm going to hold her hand before the end of the movie. It's going to happen. So we're we somewhere with Bill Paxton, the same debris. I'm like, fuck it. I'm going for it. And I just held her hand and she held it back. I'm like, yo, this is, I felt so adult. <laughs> um, wasn't bold enough to go in for any kind of kiss, though. So, yeah, finished the date. Then we dated all summer, but never saw each other again. We just talked on the phone every day for hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, we're looking forward to see each other when school came around. Then seventh grade came. But again, I got sprayed down with the asshole, and I pretend like I ain't know when I ghosted her. I don't know why I did that, but... Um, yeah, just it was seventh grade, man. It's, it's, so you got sprayed with the asshole. I don't know if you meant you or other people got sprayed with the asshole and were treating you like shit. Oh, we were all assholes. That's like, yeah. <laughs> seventh grade was terrible for me too. I got like three <laughs> suspensions in seventh grade. It was horrible. Yeah, we were. I don't know what it is, but it's just like okay, we're grown now. Grown means being an asshole. So I, yeah, it was it was weird, but made it through middle school with a lot of those friendships intact. But you know, and going to different parties. I remember. Uh, who was it? Just Just Nelson had a Halloween party in seventh grade, and it was just kind of stuff like that. You kind of get into this particular circle, and then you're just getting invited, invited to shit, and that's that's what it was. But the tough part was, my mom had like eyes and ears everywhere. So I go to a Halloween party, and like Becky Fox threw something, and we're like walking around Ambler, and they're sipping on gin and shit. And I get home the next like that night, the next day, my mom was like, oh, "I heard you was out drinking, walking around with people around Ambler." Couldn't do shit with my mom because everybody knew who she was, which means they knew who I was. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have one sister? I have two sisters. Two sisters. Two sisters. Yeah, there's Val, uh, who was a senior when I was a freshman. Mm-hmm. And um, then my sister, Veronica, who's 10 years older. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. and all went to was a Hicken? I know Val yeah. did, right? Yeah, we all had Mr. Landis, too. <laughs> his first year was my oldest sister's like when she was in middle school i think so um yeah he, he taught all three of us and mr uh, Zepka, and I, I think that was it yeah so then coming through following uh i guess like you know a legacy third generation was a hickener um <laughs> what is that like like do teachers know do teachers call out your sisters oh you're you're the Jones. You're the Jones brother. Like, is that is that? Yeah, you yeah. As you're like, coming up. 
for sure. Miss McCracken did that. Yeah, there were a couple of teachers like, okay, yeah. But I mean, again, my mom and my dad went to the city too. So oh, uh, Mr. Gallagher. So you're like fifth generation. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, who else? Mr. Oh, what was his name? Mike, Mr. Walker. Yeah, he yeah, taught yeah, my Walker. dad. Yeah. And so there were a couple of teachers there who knew, who knew my, my parents, you know, which was, which was crazy. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of any teachers that stood out. Uh, Mr. Rezepka for sure did. Uh, Mr. Welsh too. Mr. Welsh was probably the teacher that that hit me the most. He like what taught accounting. Accounting. Uh, yeah, accounting and typing. But I had him senior year. It was just a throwaway class. I was just looking to graduation. Didn't give a shit about this class. Then now that I know I probably failed it because I learned fairly quickly. I'm like, this ain't for me. I don't. I don't know this shit. I don't know how. I'm not an accountant. I don't know how to take any accounting of this. So I, I tried for like half the semester, and I'm like, eh, lost interest. I'm going to college. And, but he was still like, we really had a great relationship. So near the end of the year, I remember he came to me and he was like, puts his hand on my shoulder. He's just like, look, we both know you're not going to be an accountant. He's like, but he's like, you, you have a way with people. He's like, you, you know how to make people feel comfortable. You're kind of a schmoozer. He's like, that's a valuable gift. He's like, I don't know what you're going to do, but keep that at the forefront that you, you're good at making people feel comfortable. So I, I did. I always kept that with me. And with a lot of what I do now, uh, at least when I first got into the business, doing like assistant jobs, it's just about making people feel comfortable and you're just somebody that they want around in a, in a room, which is like a fishbowl for 20 weeks, you know? Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I appreciate him saying that. It's interesting that you came to that conclusion and then years later thought you were going to report on taxes. <laughs> that, that's the biggest gag. I'm like, how the hell am I reporting on? I'm going to like tax accounting conferences like reporting on it. I don't have to understand it. I just got to make it sound good in the, in the story. <laughs> like, that was wild. Do you do any uh, sports or extracurricular activities? What did I do? I mean, outside of school, I played, played basketball a little bit, played tennis. Uh, as far as high school. You played tennis, really? Played tennis. Yeah, my dad always made me play tennis. Like from 12 to 16, I had to like summer time, I would go to like tennis camp. And then during the year, I would go to this, country club and I had to play every Saturday, you know, um, and it was cool. I didn't mind, I didn't mind playing tennis and, but tried out for the team freshman year and the tennis coach was actually my summer coach. So I'm thinking, Oh, I got this in the bag. You know, like he have been teaching me for the past few years. Didn't get to on the team. I was like, fuck you. I don't want to play this shit anyway. <laughs> Just went about my business, but yeah, it wasn't really in the sports too much. Um, I remember my cousin Dave was, and he came to school with me junior year. He he called me and said, cuz, if I come to school with you, will you play football with me? And this is back when that was like ridiculous. Like, cause there's no way he's gonna come to school with me. So I'm like, yeah, sure, you come to school with me and I'll, I'll play football with you. And he said, I start on Monday, nigga. And I'm just like, yo, oh. are you kidding me? So, but it was cool. I'm like, all right, I, I'm a man of my word. So we, we like trained all that year. And I was working out every day and we were running in the summer. I was trying to get in some kind of shape, get in the training camp, break my collarbone on the third day. And you never saw somebody so pleased. I was like, I mean, I don't got to play no more. I'm done for the season. Bet. That was it. Went to every game, supported the team, but I don't want to try and play football. I just wasn't really, I like playing basketball a little bit, but sports just never really did it for me. Interesting. Um, I never attempted. That's why everything I did was just like musicals. Yeah. Musicals, chorus. I remember that. I went to the one you and Brandon were in. Was it Guys and Dolls? 
Uh, Mame. Okay. <laughs> Mame. Yeah. Uh, terrible experience. I quit. So TV Lab is uh, one night we did that uh, senior year. Um, and maybe you went to that one as well. And I think Brandon might have been in that one too. Uh, I quit that one. Okay. Senior year. That was my fair lady. Uh, but that was the only realm of like extracurricular I ever got into. I was not into playing sports. You see, I wish I would have thought to do that. I had the confidence to do it. <laughs> I mean, like, but that was never a thought either. It was always just kind of sports uh, or nothing. You know? you know, it's funny. Like a lot of guys, no guys did it in middle school. I was the only guy in middle school that ever did musicals in, in our grade, at least. Um, and then it was like middle by high school, maybe like you'd get, you know, 15, 18 guys that would do mm -hmm. it max. Um, so it's stepped up, but yeah, that you were, you were in a, in a large group of guys that just never would do it anyway. Yeah. 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 Nobody in my circle would think about that. It wasn't even like, I only went to that show cause Brandon was in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when I was like, Oh shit, Brandon's in there too. You know what I mean, but, uh, yeah, it was just never, never a thought. Uh, so who were you hanging out with in high school? Who were your, your friends? Oh, wow. I feel like there's a change over every year. <laughs> um, did it change every what was it? What do you think that was attributed to? Well, I mean, freshman year was just revelatory. I mean, because, again, everybody was going their, their separate way. Uh, I was friends with a lot of girls in middle school who, when I got to high school, it's just like, hey, hey, what's up? Like, we still cool? And they were just kind of like, no, no, we're <laughs> not one of the, you know, you're not, a, you're a black dude, but you don't play sports or anything. You're not really with those black dudes. I can't really be seen with you. So it was, it was weird. I'm like, damn, what I do? So, and uh, again, I was feeling some, I was pushing away from some of my white boys that I was cool with, like all through middle school, because I, I remember the exact moment when I was like, I'm good. That's it. Like I was hanging out with them. We we're walking through a neighborhood in Bluebell. We saw um, some movers moving some furniture out of a house and they were, they were black dudes. And one of the guys, I remember his name, I'm going to put him out there. He was like, look, y'all, they're robbing the house. And that would have been like kind of the last straw for me. Cause there were just little comments before that. And I was just like, and I've been making uh, more kind of black friends in high school. Cause I'm like, I'm taking different classes. You know I mean, they're, cause the world just kind of opens up. So I'm meeting black people who didn't know me the past X amount of years could, to your point, anybody that did know me had this idea of who I was. Like he's hanging out with the white people. He ain't like black, black. So being in a freshman in high school, you're meeting a bunch of new people. I'm hanging out with black people who didn't have this backstory on me. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm good with the, the little racist kind of comments from, from the white guys and we're not even connected anymore. So that's when I started hanging out with more, more black people. You asked who specifically like freshman year, it was like Sean Benson, Anthony Troop, uh, who else? Uh, me and my boy, Raphael Twig started hanging out yeah. a, lot, <clears throat> a lot more. Me and Aubrey started hanging out a lot more. And then like, yeah, that carried over in the sophomore year when it was like me, Aub and uh, Coop were together every day. Like, we were just out. And when I say out, it usually meant the Burger King up by the mall. You know what I mean? We were yeah. just always together. And Aubrey was dating Nettie at the time. So we were always in West Ambler by Nettie's crib, hanging out. Um, and that was great. Like it was, it was the first time I really felt like, oh, I got real friends and we're just kicking it every day kind of thing. That was, that was new. And we'd just be going to like Fort Washington Expo parties, which kind of had, uh, it was like these quarterly parties that were thrown by, I think it was like 103.9 or some shit. And that was like, so eye-opening to me. That shit was like, I never really gone to any black parties like that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm used to, uh, I'm coming off of going to parties in middle school where, you know, with the white people, you know, they do that dance. It's like this wiggle. It's kind of this side-to-side -side thing. Like, they're, 
having some kind of sex. I don't know what it is. So that's that's my frame of reference. <laughs> so I get to Wait, what was it? A kind of wiggle, you say? It was like this worm kind of thing. I, I don't know what it was, but I figured that's how people dance. And that's the shit I was doing at those middle school dances. And then I get to these parties and I'm like, oh, we don't dance like that at all. Um, and I realized like very, very quickly with the help of some people that, oh, I dance like a white dude. I mean, I think uh, Brittany Johnson told me that shit 10th grade. I hope you're listening to this, Brittany, because I remember it. She was just like, Hank, you dance like a white boy, man. You got to you gotta practice. And I'm like, yo, I've been dancing like a nut this whole time. So called Aubrey, I'm like, oh, you be dancing all the goddamn time down the hallways. I need you to come over, show me something so I don't look like a nut at these parties. I was like, cool, came over, showed me how to do the heel toe, showed me the crip walk. Uh, he had some other little things I couldn't really pull off. And to this day, I rely on those two dance moves. So thank you very much, Aubrey. Wow. You know, uh, that's so interesting. Um, I've talked a few times about, like, my experience in school and, you know, not having, like, a black experience uh, growing up, being biracial, my whole family is white. I didn't have a relationship with my dad's side of the family. Um, and I didn't have really any black friends. Yeah. All my friends were white. So I'm curious, your experience prior to coming into, into high school, where you said a lot of your friends are white, we grew up in the same town, in the same borough. Mm -hmm. um, I always thought, you know, just being biracial, um, no, nah, I don't even think that's it. I just, I just, for some reason think I, I think it was maybe the area I grew up in was kind of hard. Yeah. Um, as far as, you know, the neighborhood and the, what the kids were into from time to time, stuff that just my much, I think like what, probably like what your parents were like, um, just didn't fly with my parents, things that, that were going on in the neighborhood. So hanging out at certain people's houses or whatever, wasn't really allowed. It was more of like, you can play outside, but that would be about it. Um, so until one, and then once we moved from there and we moved to like an apartment, I didn't really have like friends outside of the white friends that I already had accrued from living there. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious you growing up in Ambler, um, what was your experience then with, um, with, I guess, friendship with race mm -hmm. outside of, of school, but you know, not really coming across that, but then also your experience just with blackness, I guess, right. if that's being that you were surprised at how you're supposed to dance or, you know, the stereotype that you didn't, weren't even aware of that at that point. I had no knowledge of, um, and yeah, to back it up, like I, I told you that we lived in Ambler for a bit, but then we moved, kind of like moved on up to the white neighborhood over by like West, West Ambler. It was like, you kind of drive up Mount Pleasant mm -hmm. and uh, we were right there. And that was uh, just jarring kind of, you know, cause again, coming from Ambler, I referenced like Justin Newman and Theo Thompson. I think like Chris Stout was like, my hero back then, <laughs> I mean, uh, not Chris Stout. Uh, what was his name? His brother Sorry, was Chris. Jason. Yeah, Chris. His brother was what? His brother's name was Jason. Yeah, a younger brother named Jason. Shout out to Chris Stout, too. But anyway, Jason, yeah, there, Jason there was, Morris. Not Jason Morris. Yeah, shout out to Jason, too. Um, but yeah, there were just more black people, but moving into this white neighborhood, and we had white people in Ambler, too, but this neighborhood in particular, it was just a little different for me and my sister because we were all over that neighborhood in Ambler, like playing with everybody. But we, and a lot of these kids in the neighborhood were cool. Like we had, um, like Carrie McCormick was there with her brother Chauncey. They were super mm -hmm. cool. 
and I heard Paige's podcast too. And she said, one of the kids in the neighborhood. I was in that neighborhood, Paige. All right, I was there. We had Chris Hedlund, uh, Joel, his sister. We had the Fricks, Ryan Early. We had a lot of kids in that neighborhood. We had Mary Kate, who was not quite in our neighborhood, was in the neighborhood next to ours, but was always in our neighborhood. We had a lot of kids, but um, that was the first time me and my sister kind of noticed that we were treated different. You know, not by everybody, by by enough. We were like, I don't, I, we don't know how we feel about this, but it wasn't. We couldn't identify it, so we still kind of were hanging out with our circles. And for me, it was guys like you know, just in my class, you know, Tom Frenchman, Michael Largis, and a bunch of people like that. That was like my my circle. Um, but yeah, it's just that's in high school, it just started shifting. That's so interesting. I mean, I definitely craved that, uh, especially once I got to to high school. Just music tv shows uh movies uh craving that experience coop was like a big part of that for me uh alaya kelly brailsford um were some of the ones that like i got out of you know got that experience from but it wasn't all the time for you it's interesting like you saying like that's kind of like the moment where you really settled in like oh these are real friends Exactly. Um, but it still wasn't it wasn't easy. I wasn't well well received in uh West Amber. The light skinned dude coming down from the rich neighborhood trying to talk to the girls, that's never well received. So I had I had some run-ins with people. Um, but I'd still take that over trying to kind of fit in someplace where I felt I never felt like I was accepted. You know, I'm never I'm not gonna say I was all the way accepted hanging out with the black crowd I was with, but I was more accepted there than with, with the white kids. You know, um, and yeah, I got a better res- response from the black girl. So that's, that's why I stayed in that lane. Yeah, that'll, that always will sell you. Yeah. <laughs> Where are the girls at? <laughs> wow. That's really, well, I, was always, I was always conscious of it though. Um, it was something that was never, I was always aware of the fact that I was straddling this line where it's like, you know, uh, too black for the white kids, not black enough for the black kids, you know? Um, so I never, yeah, I never really felt. I got fit in anywhere until college. Yeah, that was my exact experience. For me, I don't think it ever. I mean, at a certain point, I think you get old enough um, that you don't. I mean, like now that you're a grown up, you you make your own friends and go where you want to, so to speak, and can make friends from anywhere. Um, but when I was younger, definitely was kind of the mentality of can't go here, can't go here all the time. Right. Um, but I don't think for me, I ever really ever got to dive into a full on black community um, in any, you know, anywhere that mm-hmm. I ever, you know, ever existed, lived, um, worked or anything like that. Yeah, it was, um, I don't know, it was just a comfort to it. Like, and since I wasn't being well received in parts of Ambler, that's when I started venturing out. I was going to hang out and. Norristown a little bit with my cousins and I was going to like this youth group at this church in West Philly and, and talking to people there. I was going to where uh, black people had no frame of reference of me. You know, they weren't looking like, oh, that was the dude that rode the white kids bus in middle school kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, or at least. And that might be me projecting. That might have been my insecurity, too. But uh, I do remember hearing the comments like, what is he doing here? Why is that? Do-? You know what I mean? So it's, it wasn't made up. So it was nice to get out and meet other people who didn't have this idea of who I was, you know. Yeah. Did you look for something like that? Leaving was a hicken of like when you were looking for schools. I mean, Jacksonville, um, is that a black, is that a, a heavy black 
Jacksonville uh, University. Yeah, it ain't like my light skin ass down there. Yeah. I'm in there quick. Were you looking um, like to keep that experience going as you were searching for schools? Was there any prerequisite for you when you were looking for schools? I was just looking to get as far away from, from and as I, I could, you know, I was just over it. Um, I was just, all right, whoever takes me as far enough away, I'm, I'm bouncing. What was uh, far enough away? Jacksonville. <laughs> Jacksonville was far enough away. Uh, but then I realized it was a little too far. I don't want to be that far. Like these, let's look at DC schools. Uh, I just want to be a couple hours away. Uh, that'll work. So I can still pop home like once a month. You know, because then I got away and I miss my friends. I miss everybody, you know. Um, so D.C., D.C. was it. And George Mason was, I'm, I'm so glad I picked it, you know. Uh, it was a great school. Did your friends leave as well? Or did your friends stay in Ambler? You say you missed your friends, so was coming back, everyone was, was there? Or was yeah, it everybody, time, time? Everybody stayed pretty much. Um, some other friends, of course, went to school. But, yeah, come back at holidays and they were all there. But for the most part... Uh, most of my friends stayed. Like, I think about my graduating class, there wasn't a lot of black males who went to and finished college. You know what I mean, it's like me, I think all twigs, that, that might be it. Um, I don't think we had a lot of black dudes in my class anyway, but yeah, of the ones that were there, one a lot of us that went to college, you know? Uh, so every, like a lot of people in my circle just stayed and stayed local. Did, was that ever uh, a thought for you? to not go to college? Was that ever going to be available oh, to be an was, option? You know, my mother, they, God, there was no option. I was going to college. It was yeah. not a choice. Yeah. And I, you, I wanted to go, you know? Did you look anywhere else? Being that you switched before, was there anything else on the list before you chose? Yeah, not really. I mean, uh, North Carolina A&T, uh, which was an HBCU, didn't, didn't end up picking that. Um, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot. And I wish, you know, I remember my dad came to me when it was time to pick out colleges, he kind of dropped the big book of colleges on my lap and was like, <laughs> have at it. And I think he was just used to my sisters. Like my oldest sister is just tenacious. You know, like she picked out all of her own schools and scheduled like just uh, tours and everything. Uh, my sister Val, she, she picked her college. So I don't think they were used to kind of giving a push. I think I needed a push. And so I was just kind of left to me to find some colleges. So I was literally, going through the book just like this and <laughs> picking something, you know? Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really thought. It was really just getting away from, from my hometown. I was just kind of over it. Um, you mentioned uh, out of sight um, from middle school. Was there anything in, in high school movie-wise that you were deep into? <clears throat> anything in high school. Was it Battle, Battle Royale? Really? Uh, yeah, Kalar just put me onto that one. That was um I remember he let me hold that DVD and I watched it and it just blew my mind. Um so Wow. You know, I so I went obviously went to film school also at Temple, but like I that's I don't think I became aware of that till then, like oh four yeah. or something like that. Wow, you're on that early. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a big one. Uh what else in <clears throat> high school was really just whatever I went to go see. I remember going with Aub and, and Nettie to go see Baby Boy. That one was like, oh, shit. Like, that movie still doesn't get enough love. You know, I thought Baby Boy was amazing. Uh, I think yeah, Jess Davis is good, too. That might have been the last time I saw Jess Davis in life. I think it was when we went to go see Baby Boy. Yeah, that was crazy. Because um, you guys are in the same state. I know. She been uh, Every time she's like, yo, come up to Oakland. I'm like, it's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I got my Charlotte. For, oh, <laughs> for both of you. For both of you. For both of you. She works long days and has tons of kids, and you just had a kid. You're working long. Like, yeah, we ain't do it 10 years ago. We damn sure ain't doing it now. But, oh, that's uh, funny. Yeah, that's still, we check in with each other from time to time. No, like, happy for her. But yeah, I just haven't, haven't been able to get up there for long enough to see her. You know, uh, but what other movies were there that really hit? Uh, I remember senior year, like, we were at the movies every week. Like, we went to go see, like, Lord of the Rings, Spider-Man, Blade Two, all all that shit came out senior year. Um, we went to see, like, The Born Identity. Uh, all those, it was, it was dope. Um, you mentioned Baby Boy and, just, you know, you're in the industry. Did you have any type of, like, connection, like, emotional-wise to John Singleton? And his films? Uh, to his films, for sure. Uh, Higher Learning was the one I watched more times than I care to admit. Um, I loved Higher Learning. First, first time I saw Higher Learning was uh, at Brandon's. We, Brandon and I had had this, like, this car washing business uh, after my freshman year of high school, like in the summertime. So we go, we wash cars all morning, and then uh, we just go back to his house and like, just watch movies and shit. So I remember he put me on to American History X, and higher learning and i thought they were both just like mind-blowing you know um that, i think that was one that had a big impact on me especially of john singleton movies like even more so than boys in the hood uh but then i met john out here we were at a party and i was there with my wife and i was trying to talk to him a little bit and completely ignored me and then proceeded to hit on my wife in front of me so it's funny it's funny how fast everything goes out the window <laughs> like how much are you kind of idolize this person and just want to pick his brain at that moment i was ready to knock his little like five foot four ass out wow. you know um, is he tiny? Still, yeah yeah he's not a tall guy uh but it's still john singleton though but yeah oh that's, that's disappointing still, i mean eh, what are you gonna do how, how many people try to approach him you know so he probably has like uh, immune to that at that point but he's still prolific and amazing and i wouldn't be out here if it weren't for him so I let that go, <laughs> but yeah, at that moment it was like I don't care who you are right now. Mm. But, I yeah. I loved, uh, yeah, obviously I loved John Singles. That's why I asked um, when you mentioned Baby Boy, just being one of like, you know, the first besides the Hughes brothers, you know, in our generation as far as black directors to bring, um, I guess, modern day or contemporary film uh, to our of black life uh, to our eyes, and Singleton was you know probably in numbers. Uh, the greatest contributor to that from our generation. I mean, to be early 20s making Boys in the Hood, man, like, Jesus. Um, and just everything else, you know, and he lived, uh, like, I, I live in South L.A., and we would run into him down here. Like, we saw him maybe a month or two before he died uh, at a restaurant that, that we go to, and, like, he's always in South L.A., man. Like, he loved it down here, and that's why it's cool to to watch Snowfall and, like, just kind of to see his influence on there and see how they depict South L.A., Uh yeah, man, he was just, and I have a lot of friends who he, they wouldn't be where they are if not for him, man. So he's just, man, he's, he's, he's amazing. Yeah, Snowfalls. He, 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 he liked the ladies, though. <laughs> Snowfalls, uh, definitely my my tied for favorite current running show uh, on man. TV. Like, we, like, the Image Award nominations just came out, and, like, I'm on that committee to, to vote. And, of course, I vote for, for Snowfall, but it wasn't on the list. Like, it was, like, an All-American and a few other shows that I don't give a shit about, but it's like Snowfall needs to be front and center on there. Yeah, I love really that good. show. Yeah, really well done. 
Um, okay, so let's talk about LA a little bit because you mentioned uh, once you got out there and uh, you said you stayed with Brandon uh, for like a little bit in, in 2010, uh, mm -hmm. I guess the winter of 2010. So yeah, got there in the fall. So fall 2010. Uh, before your, before your final year. Was that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I and stayed then, with him January, 2010, just for vacation. And then I moved out there and lived with him that September. So literally right before all that, like in between that, I went out, out to California. Oh, wait, I think you told me about that. Yes. You were down yeah. in like San Diego, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was there and um, I got there in like May and I left in August because I was Ooh. like not into this at all. And wow. and the exact like Brandon's like I was so I was in San Diego and we were working on some stuff. And uh, I was just like, this is not like happening. I'd had like a couple meetings with people that knew people. That were like, oh, uh, what was was it the uh, the game that you worked on, right? Yeah. On BET, yeah. Mm -hmm. and I and I told you like I I had heard about that show too, and someone's like, that's a great place to get started, and we might be able to connect you to somewhere. And I was oh, just, shit. I was just so not in. I was just so lost in what this world of LA was, and I don't know, turned off a bit, I guess, and probably being naive. Um, mm. and I just was like, you know what? I think I just want to go back to the East Coast. I just like the East Coast. Even if I end up moving to New York or something like that, I'd rather do that. But I was like, this is not. And I remember telling Brandon, I was like, I'm going back. And he's like, stay with me. Like, just like stay with me for a little bit and figure it out. And I was like, nah, I'm out on this. And I left in August. That's crazy, man. I, I can't <laughs> next month. But it's funny how that goes, though, because it's always it's that sharp. Like either you come to LA and you love it or you hate it. I've yet to find somebody who's straddling the fence, you know, uh, cause I know other people who came and just like the same for me and, and bounce, you know, and, but I loved it. I knew the second I got here, it was just like, Oh, this was the best decision. You know, what did you love? Uh, just the, just the vibe of it. I loved how different it was. I loved that the beach was so close and that I could look one direction and see mountains and see beach, uh, beach elsewhere. I love, I love that. Everybody that here was on the same page, you know, like everybody, it's a transplant city. So everybody's out there to make it, you know, whether you're an actor, DP, director, writer, like it was just, it was cool to be around a bunch of people on the same track, you know. When I listened to uh, the interview you did last year, um, where you talked a little bit about uh, what you did when you went out to LA. And I think you said you worked for, um, uh, not TurboTax. Um, oh, LegalZoom. LegalZoom. Legal, LegalZoom. Yeah. You were doing copywriting? Yeah, I was like, like a proofreader. Like proof proofreader of legal docs and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So like when you like when you talked about that, was like your first job in LA, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I hear that and I think like, yes, that was in my head what I thought I was going to do. I was going to need to do to like even start. And I couldn't push myself to do that. I don't know if it's ego. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just... Um, I just didn't think my I just, my vibe couldn't accept finding my way in these tiny steps. And mind you, I was coming off of like working at WWE. So I, I probably thought that I should be starting somewhere about here. And in right. reality, no one knew what the fuck pro wrestling, how you write pro wrestling or what that was. So like I was I have so many questions about, but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, side. yeah. <laughs> so like I, I, I was like starting here or here, you know what I mean? Like no one cared. No one knew what it was. People I would talk to people and they go, so you wrote like punch, punch, kick or like, what do you mean you wrote? <laughs> yeah, it was like a miserable attempt. And to me, I was just like, 
oh, this is not what I thought. Not into this at all. Um, what was your trend? What was like your your grind from like moving out there? You stay with Brandon, legal Zoom. What are you thinking during between that period? And then was the game your your first gig? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first first two years in LA, you know, got the job at Legal Zoom. That first year, like Legal Zoom was my life because like money was was scarce. So I was just working so much overtime at at Legal Zoom, and I wasn't doing that. I was just reading a bunch of books about writing scripts and writing bad a lot of bad scripts. And I, I took like a UCLA extension course on script writing, and um, yeah, I was just doing doing that kind of work and. Um, then the second year, I'd started meeting people like through through Brandon a little bit, who were who were creators who were out in LA to, to try to try to make it. And one of them like did a short film, uh, which Brandon was a producer on, and I worked on it. It's just like a PA, and um, they used like my uncle's house out there to to shoot at. And I remember I was parking cars, and I hit a trash can, and it's just black woman saw me and she just goes like, Oh my God. I'm like, yo, don't tell nobody. And she turned out to be like the star of the short film. And so we both laughed about it. And we like stayed, we were cool and fast friends and then stayed friends after that. And she had just gotten a job as an assistant to Mara and Selena McKeel, who had the overall deal with BET and they're creators of the game and being Mary Jane. So she hit me up like a month later saying, Hey, we got this job, um, you know, for, as a writer's production assistant for the game. Do you know anybody? Yes, you know me. No idea what a writer's PA was, but like, why not? You know what I mean, so and I had done an internship uh, before that, and uh, Legal Zoom was cool about it. They let me leave at at lunch for a couple hours, two days a week, to go do this internship at a literary management company, which was terrible, and I didn't really learn too much. Uh, but I was able to put that on my resume, use that to get an interview for this writer's production assistant job. And writer's production assistant, of course, is you know you're getting lunches, you're getting coffees for the writers in the writer's room, you're doing all the miscellaneous errands that nobody else wants to do, you know? Uh, so that was the job. So I, I went in and interviewed and was super adamant, like, this is my shot, gotta give me this shot. And they were like, all right, you got spunk, let's see where this goes. And I remember driving back to Legal Zoom on a Thursday, and I was like, hey, tomorrow's my last day, don't throw me a party, uh, I'm out. <laughs> and that, was, yes. that was it. Uh, Cause I was over that job at that point anyway. Um, and then I started at the game uh, that Monday. Prior to, so uh, for that year and change, mm -hmm. before you, you make that connection and start going through that process, are you thinking like, you know, you're going two months, three months, eight months, and you're just working at LegalZoom and you're writing, but like, what are you thinking? Like, how do you keep pushing forward? Because that's what I feared I wasn't going to be able to do. I mm -hmm. feared I would lose hope, lose direction, uh, end up just working forever at LegalZoom. Right. You know, what, what's your, what's your push or what's your, your vision for the, did you have a vision? Did you know what your oh, goal was? For sure. I mean, I had three or four days driving across country by myself to think about it. You know what I mean? Like the fact that I, I made that move is like, super, that's how I did it too. Yeah. It's like, it's dramatic. I mean, it's this thing. I remember packing my car and it was like this cathartic process. Like, I'm not getting a U-Haul. If it doesn't fit in my car, I'm throwing it out. So I was able to let go of all this shit from Virginia. I could let go of the X and shit, you know? Mm. So doing all of that, I'm like, this is, this is it, man. It's like, I make it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die trying kind of thing. Um, and that always kept me going. I had just had this relentless drive and I remember being at LegalZoom and I was making friends, but I never really talked 
about why I was there, what I was doing. I didn't want anybody to take me out of my zone. I remember one assholey coworker, um, somebody's like, oh, Hank just moved from, from the East Coast. She's like, oh, what, what? You came to be an actor? You came to be in Hollywood? And I was just like, nope, no, came, came for the weather. I was not going to let him shit on me. I mean, I didn't want to give him that opportunity because I know I knew I was there. And the few people I did tell, they'd be like, oh, you should talk to such and such. I'm like, nope, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, I know, I know what I'm doing. So it was just this obsession. I was, I was obsessed with making it um, and just getting to where I needed to be and doing it as fast as I could. You know, uh, so I was just learning every step of the way. I was, again, taking classes. I was going to like film festivals. I was trying to meet writers, applying to different fellowships, just whatever I could do, you know, and Brandon was super helpful. Uh, like connected me. Um, yeah, man, it was, it was just a relentless, obsessive drive. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I couldn't see myself pushing through making it. Um, and that's why I asked like, what was your pushing? And did you know you were gearing up to be a writer? Was that, did yeah. you know that that's what you wanted to, um, end up slotted in, in that I, I spot? Knew that, that was it. I knew I was coming out for writing, which was great. Cause I just, I had a focus. I mean, a lot of people come out here and it's like, oh, maybe I'll be an actor or a director. Right? Like you gotta have a focus. You know? right. um, and that was, that was it for me. It was, it was writing. And really, again, this is all I've ever been passionate about all my life. I told you, I wasn't in the sports. I wasn't in the school, really, like all this, all this shit. But movies and, and entertainment and Hollywood, that's all I ever gave a shit about. Uh, so that was also a drive for me, because it's like, if I don't do this at, at that time, I'm like, I don't know what the hell else I'm going to do like with my life. You know, this is all I, I care about. Someone told me when I was out there once that he said, well, what do you write? And I told him everything comedy drama i can do anything and he's like no you have to pick one thing that you're good at did you find yourself having did you find yourself starting to try to hone something you said you were writing this whole time um or even just during your job did you find yourself having to pick a specific focus of the focus well i mean i grew up in, in comedy rooms like all the shows i was on as an assistant were comedy so uh, I would write comedies, but I also like writing dramas too. You know, that's just a muscle I wanted to flex. And I feel like I had a voice for, for writing dramas. And I'm talking about like just TV pilots. Um, and then I got some bad advice from somebody I probably should have listened to years ago who told me the same thing. They're like, you got you to gotta pick a lane, man. You're going to confuse people. They're, they're not going to be able to know where, where to put you. And I remember at the time, I'm just like, I'm not doing that shit. Like, I'm not doing this to make people feel comfortable about how they see me. Like I like writing both and they, they can figure it out. And then you see this merging happen of comedy and dramas. You know what I mean? So we have all these hybrid shows now. So like, I feel like I was ahead of the curve on that because um, now a lot of my samples, I'm able to get on these kind of dramedies and well, I switch back and forth now between comedy and drama, you know, because I've, I've been writing both for, for a long time. Um, Hard shift music, high school. <laughs> what were you listening to? Yeah, man, well, me, me and my cousin Dave were both uh, huge Cameron fans um, from '98 on, like Confessions of Fire, even before that with um, SDE. Yeah, yeah, I mean, SDE, though, that came out junior year. I remember that. But um, yeah, Cam, Cameron was it, which is cool now to go back and listen to because my wife is from Harlem. 
So I'll be listening to a song and she's like, oh, I know that. I know that story. I'm like, oh, he's talking about Rikers Island. He's talking about C-Block. I'm like, that's what he's talking about? I have no idea for the past 20 years because there's so many local references. But she was like, oh, I know that person he's talking about. So I like this insider track for it's like this um, dissection of Cameron songs for my wife. Cam is a name dropping motherfucker. He's mm-hmm. always dropping corners and like shit that I go. I think if the police were listening. Right, right. they're just taking taking notes. Like, all right, guys. Luke got talent, man. I'm like, jeez. <laughs> but yeah, so Cam was was big. Uh, of course, Jay Z. Uh, who else was I into back then? Cam, Jay, Beans, of course. Old Freeway, uh, and anything Philly related. Um, remember, remember major figures. Yes, major figures. Yeah. Um, and who else? Philly's most wanted. <laughs> all, all those local Philly groups, man. That was yeah, in steady rotation. Yeah, that was definitely uh, my wheelhouse. Uh, I'm curious. Growing up, uh, did you did you have a shift where you were before like getting into into current music? Do you have a shift like under your parents listening to other music? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, my my parents are very different. My mom is you know she loved Marvin Gaye, she loved Luther, Alexander O'Neill. Uh, when make it big. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of always on rotation. But my dad, my dad was big into, uh, oh, damn, what's the boy's name? He had the song, He Wants to Be a Dental Floss Tycoon. Oh, my God, I got to look it up, man. I'm sorry, it's my job. Yeah, yeah. Got to look this up. I got. I want to know this, Dental Floss Tycoon. Yeah. What was his name? Frank Zappa, that's his name. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, my dad liked Frank Zappa, Talking Heads. Uh, he listened to the Beatles. I think my parents both listened to the Beatles a bit. So he had, like, these contrasting uh, sounds in the house. And then my sister, like, goddamn, Val was big into, like, Nine Inch Nails, like, heavy shit. Like, that was all, like, she loved Nirvana. Um, yeah, so she had that bump in her the whole time. So, and like, ooh, I mean, Nirvana was dope. Nine Inch Nails was dope. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit, like, they're throwing some. So I would listen. I was still, like, kind of worshiping my sister back then, so I would listen to what she listened to. And then Veronica, just, like, all things, nine, SWV, TLC, um, all those 90s favorites. I mean, she graduated high school in 92, so okay. yeah, a lot of Tribe Called Quest. So I had so many different types of music uh, in, in the house, and that's uh, probably why I listened to such a, a different mix of songs today. Yeah, it's the exact same with me. I can see now why um, you, when you have these differences of, of being too white or too black, um, a lot of it for me also stemmed from the music because I would have these, you know, stuff that, that my mom listened to or just whatever was on the pop with the pop stuff that would be on Q102 or Eagle 106 or whatever it was at that time. Or my mom might be listening to Star 104.5 or <laughs> something like that. And and but then at the same time, like my dad being Stevie Wonder and Michael and and Ray Charles and and Marvin Gaye and yeah stuff like that and and that's what you kind of listen to the rest of the time. Uh, but then on my own accord, it took years before like I really got deep into like rap. Middle school probably, so mm-hmm. I really really started diving primarily into into rap, uh, and then a little bit of like more seventy soul again as I got older, as we all do, right. But, right. um, but yeah, I was huge in the rap, like from eighth grade up through college. Uh, and then, you know, once that piff came in, like I'm listening to Currency was Khalifa, like all the mixtapes they were putting out, uh, especially Currency when he was up, when Dame Dash had his little kind of art 
gallery slash studio in New York and it'd be like uh, Tabby Bonet and Currency up there and they were putting out songs every day. Um, so that was a big influence, but everything shifted once Spotify came out in 2011. That's like everything opened up um, musically for me because I remember going to Coachella in 2012 and I was like, all right, before I go to Coachella, I'm going to, I got Spotify now, still new. I was like, I'm going to listen to everybody who's performing at Coachella. Wow. So I went and I was at work still legal zoom. So I just had my headphones on and I would add a word document and I was just checking off every artist and listening to their whole catalog. So that, I mean, I, I stopped listening to rap after that. Like, cause I would, I would hear all these songs which were sampled by rappers. And I always assumed with the original songs, I'm like, damn, they just like, the reason why I like this song is because of this, this artist. So like St. Vincent, uh, Friendly Fires, M83, Tame Impala, you know what I mean? Like my whole sound just shifted after 2011. That's funny because the Coachella lineup just came out. I was looking at all these little bands and acts that were performing. I was like, I don't know any of these guys. Yeah, those ones you need a magnifying glass for. Those are the ones I, I would start with those, you know. Um, and yeah, it just opened everything up. Uh, so I started doing a lot of festivals. And uh, me and my boy, Collargis, I mentioned, you know, we always had this relationship built on movies that we would talk about. But then once I started getting into this other music, he's like, boom, all right, you caught up. I've been to this too. And we started hitting all these festivals together. Coachella, that's a uh, pretty synonymous. I feel like with like the LA lifestyle. Uh, yeah. Since you've you've been out there, what's what's maybe the most LA thing that you've you've been a part of, attended, done, seen? All slashes between all those phrases. I mean, Coachella is probably number one. Um, street food cinema, that's a big thing. You know, you it's like all these food trucks, and uh, then they scream like just old movies. Like oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, my wife, our first date was, I took her to Shreveport Cinema to see Do the Right Thing. And uh, it was great. We had the blankets and got some food and and that was it. Um, I've seen what, like Lost Boys there. It's Halloween. Like, it's, it's a good vibe, but that's a very LA thing. Hmm. Uh, going to see Beach House at the Hollywood Cemetery, you know, they, they do like shows and stuff. That was, that's a Hollywood thing to do. And then I went to my first Laker game uh, this year. Hadn't hadn't gone because oh, for like a decade you've been out there. A decade, you've never, never gone. Never went one because I was always broke. Like the first half of the decade, you can't. Clippers tickets are cheaper than Lakers tickets. Yeah, yeah. And two, I couldn't stand Kobe. I was still mad about losing the finals back in two thousand one. I couldn't yes. support this man. So, did I was like, I will not go to a Laker game until he retires. So, yeah, I said. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, never let like, the feud die. I don't care if he's dead. Is. Never let the feud die. <laughs> I don't but care. But that's the thing, though. It, it did take him dying for me because after he died, you know, he won the Oscar, uh, and he was just that been was doing dope. Yeah, that was dope. He's been doing some interesting things post basketball, and he. Um, I listened to his podcast with uh, Matt Barnes, like the, the All the Smoke podcast, and it really hit me. I remember I'm listening to it as I'm flying out to Sundance, and. Everything he was saying, I'm just like, yo, Kobe's like my hero. Like, this is, I, I love post basketball Kobe. You know, I was a fan. And then yes. he died that Sunday. I listened to it on Friday. He died that Sunday. Man, it was, uh, that shit broke my heart. And I realized, like, yes, I didn't like Kobe through all my teenage years and all my 20s, but this is somebody who was, he was in our lives since um, seeing him on Action News at his prom back in 96, mm -hmm. you know, and the kids being mad talking about this is our prom. It's not Kobe's prom. Like, no, it's, it's Kobe's prom. He brought Brandy. You know what I mean, but, and he, he blew out with a hickam by like 40 points. Like Kobe had been around since I was like 12 years old. So that shit hit hard when he died. 
Yeah, so you know it's funny because I remember uh, when I was at WWE uh, visiting in LA. Uh, we were doing a show at the Staples, and Brandon came and visited me at the hotel, and we watched. Uh, I want to say it was uh, Lakers Celtics uh, playoffs championship oh, wow. uh, season. Um, it was well, Lakers. Yeah, I mean, it was, was two thousand ten, right? Wasn't twenty ten? It would have been like oh eight. Oh eight. Okay. Uh, and I don't know if that was against the. It was definitely Lakers. I can't remember if that was against the Celtics uh, or not, but yeah, um, I think because oh nine was Orlando. And 08, the Celtics won. In 2010, the exactly. uh, uh, in 2010, the Lakers won. Right. 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 So this was 2008, the first Lakers Celtics uh, championship, and Brandon was like rooting for the Lakers, and I just remember really thinking like, wow, that's crazy. He's been out here huh, for for a minute. Like, he loves these guys. Where do you now? You're a Lakers fan, but you mentioned you know Sixers. Your love there. Where do you stand as far as being a transplant in LA? But Philly's hard to let go of. I noticed that with Brandon too, but Brandon wasn't, I mean, he was in Philly for a couple of years, but I remember he went out to California. He got his family from North Carolina. So I don't know how much he, he really, in, he was in Massachusetts kind of, for a hot second. Yeah. I don't know how much he really claimed Philly like that, but for me, uh, it's just Philly all day, man. Come on. Like all right. I got the, the package so I can watch every Sixers game, watching Eagles. Like there was an Eagles bar, uh, which is partly how I got uh, on the show Bel Air. Thanks to this Eagles bar, but we would go every Sunday and it was just be me and a bunch of Philly people and just watching Bears games every every Sunday. It was it was amazing. But then they shut the bar down. So I had to bite the bullet and get the, the NFL ticket, you know. Um, but but yeah, it's always gonna be Philly. Uh, but I'm warming up to the Lakers a bit. I like going to Lakers games. I'm not gonna call myself a fan, but um when I'm not watching the Sixers games, I'm watching Lakers games, you know. Well, Philly, you mentioned it, Philly to LA. I mean, it fits the story. Um, you're writing on Bel Air now, which is you know, dropping very soon. I think this will probably like drop like the week before it airs. Oh, um, okay. So I, I think the show airs on like the 13th or something, right? Yeah. So this will be that the Monday prior. Um, but you know, what's your, what's your journey like getting from, I know you were, you, you worked on, um, mixed dish. I kind of like would follow your stuff and be like, wow, he's like, he's fucking doing it. You know, um, I don't see, you know, I don't know what Brandon's doing necessarily. I don't see much of like his stuff out there, but um, luckily I've been able to just see all the things that you've been working on mm -hmm. um, from like Mix Dish and the Motown animated series oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that you was, worked on. And yeah. um, you've had your hand in like so many things that are out there. Um, how does that, what's your journey? Like what's that, what's that career, I guess, style of like, you're working on one show, you get picked up for another show. What's the process? Is that like, hey, I know this guy hang from another show, or are you applying for things like that? How does that work? Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of it's word of mouth uh, for a while until you get some solid agents and, and they, they help out. But um, I, was I was working as an assistant on Blackish uh, for the first two seasons and uh, had a great time, learned a lot about, a lot about writing and, uh, when when I wasn't working there, I would come in on the weekends to the offices and just write scripts all the time and making the writers read my scripts. But I got really tight with uh, the showrunner, this guy named Jonathan Groff, and he wanted me to be his assistant. But I thought I was about to get staffed on the show, so I turned it down. And But I think he always appreciated me turning it down because I like put him. I was like, no, let's not. Let's get somebody in here who's going to be with you for the long haul. I'm looking to leave. So when I didn't get it, he was just like, well, send me some scripts. I might have a thing for you. Um, uh, yeah, just send me whatever you got. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm pro things. And I, I sent him two of my scripts. 
and forgot about it. Like I left Blackish, um, which was not an easy decision. I remember I had a conversation with uh, Kenya, uh, the creator, and I told him, like, look, bro, I love it here, but I'm not coming back to be an assistant, you know, or at least this job. I ain't getting lunch no more. I was like, you got to move me up. Um, and he was just like, didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. You know what I mean, so I was just like, I'm out. Can't, can't do this shit. So I, I bounced without a job. And um, that's when I got on New Edition as a script coordinator because uh, one of my boys from Blackish was working on that. He's like, yo, they need a script coordinator over here and send me your stuff. So I got on there and that was amazing. And um, got to work. It was just one writer on that. They treated it like a movie. So I was just working, just me and the writer in the trenches, rewriting uh, every scene, you know, because we'd be on set. And it was just, and that's how features work too. You're rewriting constantly. So it would just be me and him rewriting the script. And um, and we're still tight to this day because of that, you know. Uh, and that was a great experience. But I had to leave that early because I got a call. And I remember I was on set and they were shooting the their version of the If It Isn't Love video. Mm-hmm. And I got a I got an email saying, hey, Josh Wakely, I want you to come write on this animated show. And I had to leave um, New Edition early to go do that. And that was my first gig writing on an animated show and did that for a year and got to write eight episodes, which was great. And I thought that was it. You know, I called my mom like, oh, I made it. I'm getting paid to write. I'm living the dream. You don't got to worry about me no more. And uh, then realized that nobody on the live action side gives a shit about children's animation. I thought I was just going to be able to jump. It's all it's all writing. You know what I mean? Who, who cares? Yes. I, can go do, I can go do Breaking Bad after a kid's show. It's, it all works. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not the that's case. That's what I thought about WWE. I was like, surely I'm going to be writing The Wire, like the right. spinoff or something. David Simon, someone's going to want to see me. Yeah, there's a segue there or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there really wasn't. And I'd gotten a manager who was awful who wasn't really getting me any kind of meetings or anything. So I ended up firing her. Um, but it took a little while to get that next writing gig. Like after Motown Magic, I went to go assist my homie uh, Yvette, who was running Dear White People. And, you know, she just hit me up like, hey, I'll try to get you on as a writer, but there's no money. So just keep come be my assistant and I'll teach you how to uh, run a TV show. And, you know, Yvette created Living Single. You know, this woman, she got her start on a different world. This woman's a legend. So, of course, I take that job to be her assistant. And I would wanted to meet Justin Simeon, the creator of it, uh, because I heard he's just good peoples and had a bunch of friends who were already working on it. So I went and did that for season two and had a a ball. You know, that was one of the the best experiences. And left that. And then... Now I'm up to like 2018. I spent most of that year just doing different fellowships to like film independence because I figured I needed to diversify what I was doing. I was only working as an assistant. Mm. I was like, if I'm going to get work, if I'm even going to get representation that I want, I got to kind of make myself sexier to, to people. Like I have to make myself shiny so that they want to rep me. So I, I applied to this program, program Project Involve uh, through Film Independence, which is like a nine-month uh, fellowship kind of program where it's like me and 29 other creatives and we take these master classes where you're meeting like Barry Jenkins and like different Marvel execs and the kind of school and you on the business and then you make a, a short film. Now my track was writing and uh, so I wrote a script and you know they pair you with a director, DPs and all that and then you go and you make a short film and then you premiere it uh, with the LA Film Fest that was happening back then and then hopefully you can kind of hit the festival circuit with it. Um, so I did that, and then I did another program through Film Independent called the Episodic Lab, which is just a thing to kind of fine-tune your pilot, make it into a series pitch so you can pitch it and hopefully sell it. And that was most of that year before I finally got a call 
about staffing on a show called Family Reunion on Netflix, which is a, a family show uh, with Tia Mari and Loretta Devine. And uh, some friends, some colleagues referred me for that. And then Yvette knew the showrunner. So she called the showrunner and was like, yo, Hank's my guy, you gotta hire him. So I, that was my first live action gig, you know, which was a multi-cam sitcom, which I had never been a part of before. So, you know, you had the live audience and, and all that fun stuff. It's like a stage play. And what know? was your, as a writer or? Yeah, as a writer, I was a staff writer. That's the lowest level writer. So when you're getting there, what's the, what's that world? Like, I mean, I have so many anxieties when I think about stuff that I have to like always overcome when I'm thinking about, could I do this? And right. That, I don't know what that world's like of a, of a live studio audience. Are you like, are you kind of freaking the fuck out? Like, <laughs> yes. like, I'm about to say, like you only know animation at this point you've been trying and now here you go for, for live action yeah. and it's, and it's us and it's a style that doesn't even really happen anymore. Yeah. Um, are you just like, what am I going to do? Every show I'm on, it's what am I going to do? You know, every show is like the first day of school. <laughs> you just Thank so you nervous, for saying man. that. Thank you. For <laughs> <that>. <laughs> it is, man. It, it's just, you're freaking out that first day. Cause it's just like writing. What, what's writing? What, what are words? You know, you just forget everything. But then once you get in there, you realize, okay, I know what I'm doing. And so uh, a multi-cam comedy, like, yeah, you're, you're writing scripts, but then you, once the script is done, you go down and do the rehearsal with the cast and you're kind of taking notes as far as, because once you hear it out loud from the cast, you're like, okay, this joke works, this doesn't work. So we got to punch this, fix that, tweak that. And you're just tweaking constantly up until tape night, you know, when you bring the audience in and now it's a live show and you're going through it. And if the audience doesn't laugh, you got to come up with something there on the spot. Now we try to, some showrunners like to have what's called like a candy bag where you just have jokes ready to go. Other showrunners are like, no, 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 we'll just come up with shit off the fly. Uh, the, the latter is can be very hard. Um, but at the same time, it somehow it just comes. Like if you're just immersed into the story and um, you, you got that, that kind of joke muscle turned all the way up, you know, you're able to just kind of riff and come up with something in the moment. It's the best feeling when your joke lands, especially if it's a joke that's early on in the development. Because it's like it's got to get through all these filters. It's got to get through the writer's room, the showrunner, the network, then the audience and the, the cast. And when your joke makes it all the way well, to that audience and you get that big laugh, that is still the best film in the world. You know, uh, that's I love that about WWE was the instant crowd. It, so there wasn't much of a workshopping period for scripts at WWE. You know, you we were working on six six seven eight day turnaround not even really wednesday to to tuesday uh was our turnaround time between episodes but how, how uh, did you how did you like it because i remember hearing about that i saw that you i think you even announced it and i was like yo that's that's his dream job this is what he's been this is what he always wanted to do i thought that was it but um you, you were there for a bit and then bounce was it not not a good experience as, well, you, got, as you take a sip of the vodka <laughs> well, I, I got fired hank <laughs> Oh shit! I didn't leave. I didn't leave on my own free will. Um, it was yeah. It's a job that, like you know, like we said earlier, you don't know that these things exist. Mm. So I didn't know growing up that this was a job. So like you mentioned, um, that's awesome. You remember like WrestleMania eight and 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 the magazines and all oh. that, right? Because like when we're doing that, that's not a thing I think I could do. I got into this accidentally, completely accidentally. Even when I knew the job existed, I didn't think that was something I could do complete accident that I ended up there and I got this job but once I was there um 
it was like there was part of like a fact finding part of the job and i don't know if you have this with you know spending so many years watching movies and now you're there in hollywood but part mm-hmm. of it is just like you're just experiencing it's experiencing it to experience it and almost like confirm this is the atmosphere that you always thought it was that's a very that was a very hard thing for me to remove myself from of like quietly the a person who studied this industry now I'm in it I'm meeting these people face to face that was hard to um shift on the fly and when you talk about like um you know having to change scripts and all that stuff like that's what we were doing all the time there it was constant and I struggled with the spontaneity of writing down a good idea that's going to make the boss go ooh uh, I had great ideas I could write you months and months of shit they're not going to do it that was a frustrating thing was you, you know you write lots of stuff on a show you write stuff and you might have rewrites but you're probably rewriting more dialogue than entire plots we're changing plots we're changing characters that are on the show we're changing yeah. interactions between between characters it was a constant anxiety dump to never know for sure if what you've worked on for the last five days is going to ever even be set up, let alone recorded, aired live, any of that. You might in the next four hours have to come up with all new ideas. Sounds like SNL. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's like, so my dream before I knew that being a writer was a job was to be on SNL. Yeah. When I read about the process of SNL of the week long pitching to Lorne Michaels, and that is exactly what we did every single week. It was the exact same type of process where, but we we're writing at my time, we were writing five, we were doing five hours. I was only responsible for two, but we were producing cause we traveled for all of them. We were producing five hours of TV eight when we had pay-per-views a week. Wow. You know, so it's like if it's be like if SNL like had a show on 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 Saturday, Wednesday, and Thursday, two I mean, hours each. <laughs> hearing your process though, it's it's so similar uh, to what I do. It's not that different at all. It's, I mean, it's it's revved up a bit. I mean, God bless you all for doing that. But that I mean, because that's a lot. But it's 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 the same process. I think you would have you could have jumped on a TV show and been like, okay, this is this is pretty similar, you know. Um, yeah, and especially like the show I'm on now is like a, a murder mystery kind of procedural show and it's flexing muscles I didn't know I had, you know, and it's, it's very difficult from a storytelling perspective because there's just so many moving parts. It's like each episode we're tracking like the emotional journey of the character to the, what's the, what are the clues, what are the mystery beats to, okay, what's, uh, there's one more part to it that I can't even remember, but it's every episode is just so many moving parts to it. So it's definitely something I'm learning on the fly as I still have to pitch. I mean, I got to show that I'm supposed to be there, you know, but it's, it's a lot different from Bel Air, which is a lot different from Grownish and especially family reunion, you know? Yeah. I'm not familiar with family reunion, but I was going to say like a lot of the projects that I know you worked on, you've mentioned are very black centric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What is that like remove, like, you know, murder mystery now doesn't sound like a, a, a black movie, a black centric show, unless it's like Tales from the Crypt type of spinoff, but uh, Tales from the Hood spinoff. 
but mm-hmm. like uh you know what's that what's that is, first of all was that by design complete accident because of the connections um is it just what you feel like was a, was a wheelhouse and what's the ex- what's it like for you to expand beyond that well i mean yeah hollywood is still very much segregated you know it's not an accident that i've been on all black shows because it's a lot of showrunners are still like well, I don't have any black characters on my show, so I don't have a need for you as if I can't offer anything outside of my my blackness, you know. Um, but what they don't realize is their their white show is universal for the rest of us. There are no white shows, you know, because um, this is just what we had to grow up with as the norm. You know, so I can write those voices. I know those voices, you know, especially coming from where we grew up. I feel like predominantly uh white school, uh, like, yeah, is I, I can, I can, and that's my town as a writer. I can write different voices and I have other perspectives that I can draw from outside of my own. Uh, so that's, that's been tough. So truth be told, which is I'm on right now, that stars Octavia Spencer. Um, I want, it's weird. I wouldn't call it a, a black show, but it's, it probably is. I'm not sure. I haven't really been able to kind of get out of that, that lane. My wife did. My wife was on, uh, only murders in the building which is a big deal. You yeah. know, they only had like two black writers on that show, you know, and, and she was on Smilf, which the Showtime show, which again, didn't have a lot of black writers. It was like her and one other person. Uh, so she's been able to kind of break out of that. But to do that, you just need that one show to bring you on, see that you're talented. And then it's like telling the other white people, we got a good one here, you know, uh, but it's, it's tough to get over that first, that first hurdle. Yeah, that's wild. Um, that's so funny how similar that is to that. That was like, I can remember WWE being told like they're expecting me to pull out great things for our black wrestlers yeah. as if like the, because they're all white, they couldn't do anything with the Shelton Benjamin or, you know, like now I'm going to put magic into MVP or, you know, with some of these wrestlers and it's like, Oh wow. Like I'm the savior for all the black wrestlers on the show. That was like the, that's kind of how it was positioned to me at times. Yeah, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of pressure. Um, a lot, I mean, there's been moments in rooms where I've had white showrunners, and they say or do something I'm really offended by, and it's like, well, I need this job, but if I don't say anything, am I letting down the ancestors? <laughs> you know, so you have to kind of figure out how how to, I don't know, keep your keep your sanity, keep your dignity, but not not at the cost of your job. Um, it's funny because that's a scenario similar to what you mentioned growing up you know, through middle school where you have white friends and then feeling that need to say something. And then here you are as an adult in a workplace environment where you're kind of like, Oh God. And you have to kind of take a different oh, road. My, my God. Yeah. I've been on shows with uh, white coworkers and I have flashbacks to high school, you know, like being in a honors class, which is like me and my cousin Tara and the rest of the white people. And it's time to pair up in the groups and your, your white group members, they, they kind of ask, they leave you out. And it's like, we'll just do the work for you kind of thing it's just like wait no i can i can do the work i'm here for a reason so like when i paired up to write a script with somebody and it's only after they read me read my script they're like oh i didn't know you knew what you were doing it's like oh right yeah dumb nigga right mm. but it's still have to you're always kind of fighting that 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 fight people just having those preconceived notions of of who you are like they see the beard and the chain and I'm tatted up. I'm like, look, man, I took ski trips to Tahoe every year and played tennis and shit. Like y'all don't, y'all don't know me. The <laughs> <laughs> tennis. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So always that, that's a, I've come to terms with it, but I, cause I know it's just something that's always going to be there. And it's, it's, it is cool. Always having that ability to surprise, surprise people. 
and see that look on her face like, oh shit, you know what you're doing. You know? Yeah. But cheers, brother. Cheers, buddy. Um, it's fine. I feel bad. I feel like I'm kind of harping on this kind of high school kind of black white relations. And I, as I think about it, it was it was so much deeper than that. It wasn't just black white. Like I felt like um, it's basically some bullshit. I remember situations with girls, like where I was um, at a class with a, a Korean girl who we sat next to each other and we were like really digging each other and like feeling each other. And she was kind of deep in that uh, Korean crowd, like that clique. And I used to give her rides home from school and she would duck down in my car until we got off of the school because she didn't want any of her friends to see her in the car with me. You know I mean, and one time they did and they kind of bump rushed my car and they're like, yo, Hank, oh, shoot me with that trunk. And like, it was, she was so embarrassed, but um, she was just like, no, they can't, they can't know that we're kind of into each other, you know? Um, in a similar situation, I remember with a, a white girl who basically said, I was like, look, we're digging each other. I know you're digging me. Like, I know I'm not in that clique and I'm not like one of these kind of kids that you think I'm not that kind of black dude, but we're got to do something here. She's like, well, look, you know, I can't, I can't risk kind of being like that coming out essentially. So we would have like these real conversations. I'm just like, God, this is some fuck shit. Like if I was this version of a black dude, if I was, if I was Earl Stout, you know what I mean? On the ball team or something, it would be cool. But because I'm, I'm me, like, I'm not that, like you can't pursue that with me. So it was, I would think about all this shit in middle school and it was, it was kind of trippy, you know, it's just like, why, why are we like that? And I, I think about that because hearing the other podcasts, I hear certain people allude to race relations. Uh, the one that really stuck out to me was the bull, uh, the British dude who I had no, not, I didn't know him at all. Ama. Ama. Uh, he, he said something that really hit me was how he was treated before he played soccer. How that was the turning point. And it was even after that, it was, Girls would be like, well, why are you, why are y'all with this dude? You know, and it was just, he never said it, but to me, it's, I'm calling back to, to my situation. It was just like, damn, like it was, that racism was always kind of there. And we were just so young, we didn't, we didn't realize that's what it was. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things where like, I, I kind of look at the school and, and especially with, with Asians, because I remember the. You know, one of the things for me, like doing this podcast is like, I want to make sure that before I get 15 episodes deep, I have an Asian guest on the show. Mm. I didn't want it to be like, oh, I've just interviewed all these people and then like got to find an Asian. Like I wanted to try to incorporate Asian students into the show because I felt like during school, um, admittedly, was just like a very they were so segregated. And I think I was so ignorant that yeah. all I remember was the Asian kids in the hall and they and they walked slow and and that was like how that's how we talked about Asian kids, a lot of us, uh, in school. And I feel like, you know, I'm such a different person from then, uh, being 16, 17, 18 years old, um, that I can't even imagine, but I talking like that, but you know, my parents didn't know Asians. I didn't have like any type of education towards cultures outside of black and white yeah. right that was it for me so anything outside of that was different indian all that was different that i was probably a little bit um racist towards yeah. at least ignorant um and i wish there was a little bit more education um and here i took japanese right for for four years three years whatever it was um i wish there was a, just a little bit more education and a chance to help us understand each other more i don't know what that means um, maybe that's, you know, the critical race theory that people talk about now, 
I just wish it existed more um, in high school and even from a black perspective. I just didn't think, you know, I don't remember much about learning about black culture at um, all. At all. Mm -hmm. You know, we have Black History Month. I remember little things like that. And How many times um, am I going to have to memorize the I Have a Dream speech? <laughs> I mean, Malcolm actually had other speeches, guys. <laughs> I mean, let's switch up the curriculum. Yeah, we just didn't, like, learn a lot about, about stuff like that. And it, it now as an adult, when I go back, I, I wonder, right, it's just like you, do I remember it correctly or am I just harping on these things that I'm sensitive to because of my upbringing? Yeah, it was probably somewhere in the middle. If we're being honest. Um, I definitely wish they would have, uh, there would have been a little more of a focus on, on African-American history. Or, I don't know. I just, I wasn't as in touch with my blackness back then as I am now. And a lot of that was, I never felt like, again, I never felt like I was black enough, you know, because back then you equate your blackness to your economic standing, you know, like my, my cousins ironically used to call me Carlton. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm. it's, was always just this lesser black because of what my, my pop being a pilot and shit and he had bread. But um, again, it wasn't until college where, you know, you meet more black people like you and you're like, okay, this version of black is cool. You know, I'm not any lesser black. I talked to Bianca about that uh, a bit too. her, you know, once they had, they had some money and they came into a really, you know, nice white neighborhood uh, in Wooded Pond, and she was like the only female black teenager in the, you know, in the neighborhood. And then hanging out in West Philly with, or West Ambler with her friends, um, and it just being like a different atmosphere uh, for her. But she, you know, she came from a Jamaican uh, family where she just coming here to the suburbs in general felt a bit out of place, and the people felt different than what she had spent the first bunch of years transferring schools dealing with. Yeah, that was a good. I listened to that that podcast. That was a good interview. Uh, yeah, I, I never knew she was Jamaican. <laughs> I, was, I never knew. Um, but it is funny that you know you've you've had those experiences and then spent you know all of your time on black shows, right? And now doing this, doing Fresh Prince, yeah. Which, like you said, you said people called you Carlton. Your cousins called you Carlton. Mm -hmm. Um. It's really like a, it's the exact story of guy from Philly, black guy, having to come into this higher upper class 1% family. Uh, I'm taking the original story. So if it's different on, on the, yeah, if it's different, tell me. But, you know, this 1% this family and realizing that it's not one to one. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's so crazy just getting to this point, getting to the show. It does feel like uh, like kismet. <laughs> I mean, it just like it was supposed to happen because my samples that I wrote, my pilots that I wrote to kind of get me work as a writer, like the, the first one I wrote was, you know, called The Realist. And it was about, it was a version of me in high school and my cousin Dave comes to school and chaos ensues. And it was taken from a, a real life situation where um, Gene Smack wanted to fight me. Um, off of some shit. I have no fucking idea why. Like, oh, we, I don't, should, like, we should start a club. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't know why this dude, like, because I said hi to his girl. Shout out to Emily Dumont. And we were at like um, a pet rally. And I wasn't about to start nothing with Gene. He had like 50 pounds of muscle on me. What the fuck am I going to do? Uh, but my cousin, who's a little bit bigger, he stepped in. And I remember we, somehow we ended up in the parking lot. And uh, this other dude, James Lynch, comes up. He's like, Oh, you fighting my man, Gene? All right, I'm going to fight you, Hank. Like, 
okay, okay, I guess we're just about to go down. And I hop in the car with my boy Sean Benson, and we ride over to West Ambler and to Frank Lucas's backyard. I'm like, what world am I in right now? What is this shit? I'm like, but fuck it, I'm along for the ride. And the boy James punked out. He didn't want to fight. Uh, when I'm just like, all right, I wish I would have just knocked him out right there so I didn't have my cousin fighting by himself. But Dave and Gene ended up fighting, and um, that was kind of like Dave's rise at school because, you know, he, he took care of business kind of thing. But all of this is the premise for the pilot that I wrote. It was all kind of lifted from, just mm. from real life, which was, which was cool because it feels like there's purpose to that now. Um, so that pilot got me a lot of work. And so... I was like, well, people like this, what if I did a dramatic version of this? You know, about it's basically Fresh Prince, but through Carlton's eyes. Instead of Will going to uh, the family and, you know, the the 1% family, what if Carlton were to go hang out in West Philly for a bit? So again, it was like a version of me. A guy comes to school, I named him Forrest Sellers. I always use names for people I grew up with. And they, they take a trip to North Philly and chaos ensues, you know? Um, and both of those scripts are like my calling cards that get me all my work, you know. Uh, but that script in particular is the one that Morgan Cooper, who created uh, Bel Air, he read. And he was just like, oh, shit, like, you got to be my room. Like, you, you get it already. You could be like the voice of Carlton, but you still got this Philly shit. And uh, it's like best of both worlds. So that's um, it's a longer story than that, how I got on. But that was like the, the final the final thing that got me on. I needed a Dave Atkins to help me fight Gene. I got in this. Uh, <laughs> Shout out this... to Gene. I named the character Gene. That's the perfect bully name. Is Gene Smack? It's perfect. Uh, so I, it's funny because uh, you know I I didn't know Gene until um, sometime in middle school. We mm-hmm. both had summer camp together, and we got in a fight in summer camp. It was and, angry. And then the next year, it was like, oh shit, this dude's in my school now. Right. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't know him before summer camp where we got in this fight, uh, and it's like, oh no, I'm gonna have to see this guy every day. Um, and so we got in in tons of fights uh, throughout middle school, and it was like this enemy of mine that I always felt I had. But I had this fight set up with R.J. Smythe, who had said some some slick racial shit. So we had set it up that we're gonna fight, and Gene, being my enemy, comes to me and goes. Yo, if you touch him, I'm gonna fuck you up. Similar type of shit, right? Where it's like, so I had to go and get uh, Wham. I had to go get Will Clayton. Oh wow, who was my guy from South Ambler? So I yeah, go yeah, and I, yeah. I get him. Uh, I, I wave him out of his classroom, and he comes out, and he's, and I'm like, yo, I'm about to get in a fight at the end of this period <laughs> in the bathroom downstairs by the cafeteria. And I'm like, but Gene says he's gonna beat me up if I touch RJ. He's like, after lunch, I got you, I got you, and like, he comes down, and it was like you said, you like, what world is this? Like, I'm in the bathroom and everyone knows we're fighting it. Like, in my mind, it looked like Dangerous Minds when there's, like, that fight in the locker room. <laughs> and just, there's girls pushed into the bathroom. Everyone there to see it. And everyone's like, come on, fight. And I'm just waiting. And, like, I see Wham come in. And I'm like, all right, great. Here, here we go. And, like, then we go to business. But, yeah, it's funny. Gene Shout out to Will, man. Will was always a good dude. I love Wham. I see him uh, every once in a while. I'll see him maybe, like, once a year uh, at an Ambler event. Uh, okay, I downs. think him and, him and Miles is still cool. Miles is good people still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen Miles in a few years, uh, but of course I follow him. Uh, all the stuff he's doing on social media. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, uh, Gene, Gene, I, I appreciate whatever prompted you to want to fight me that day because that shit has been getting me work for the past few years, bro. 
Um, but yeah, it's cool to write about all that also. Like I always use names of people that I grew up with in whatever script I write. Cause it just, it, it does. It feels like it gave purpose to all those, those interactions, you know, and I always try to pick interesting names, whether it be pumpkin, uh, Wawa, Tuesday, Lucas, you know what I mean? This, we did have great so, names. Yeah. Yeah. Our, you know, solid names. So Doobie, um, Doobie Mau Mau, like, yeah. White Mike. Well, shout out to Mike Mason. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was, it's cool to call back to all that stuff, you know? Um, it's funny cause I never had the guts to use the names. And so in everything I would write, I would just change the name slightly and I'd have to remember who I was talking about Yeah, uh, cause I would slightly change the name and never had the, had the guts to use the actual name. Yeah. But I mean, if you, if you use the actual one, like it depends on the character. Um, sometimes I'll do a character that's completely foreign and I'll give him a name of somebody I ain't like just this little a joke for myself, but for the most part, when I use a name, I'm kind of building that character up. Like the character Forrest Sellers, I mentioned, it's it's based on Forrest. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what I remember of him, I built the character based on uh, just a little bit I knew about him. You know, um, and it just helps bring the writing to life. You know, um, hard shift. Let's talk about your friendship with C Money. <laughs> <laughs> That's my guy, man, Chris Chris Collins. <laughs> What is what was the, the the attraction there? I just as like as mortal enemies go, he's the only guy I keep I keep the flag flying high. Yo, I want to see that guy in the streets. No, no, I'm curious. I'm so Chris. Chris was uh, my last uh, week before graduation. Got in a fight, of course, and oh, you got in a fight with with money. Wait, you don't know about this? I had no knowledge of. It. Oh yeah, I got a fight my last week of school. Oh, this uh, is the week like you almost didn't graduate. Yes. It was with C Money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. He also said some slick racial shit uh, in the cafeteria. Oh. And it was one of those things where all the black people here. And if it was just me, I'd let it go. But everyone was like, ooh, you hear what he said? I'm like, no, what do you say? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like Jermaine's there. And like, I'll be oh, on FaceTime right now. Yeah, everyone's, everyone's at the table. They're like, yo. And I'm like, can't let that go. Ooh, oh, good. Oh, so yeah, then yeah. I, so I walked out to him and I slap him in the face, just open hand slap right in the face in front of everyone in the cafeteria. That was the only option available to you. That was, was it. That was just open hand slap in the face. And then like, it was one of those things where like, he didn't really want to fight. So he tried to like, just crawl the scene. So he just grabbed a chair and he like picks it up and throws it. And then everyone, I, I was there. I remember the chair. Holy shit. And then everyone just is like, Yo, hit him. Fuck that. Hit him. Fuck that white boy. Hit him. <laughs> so, so I'm like, all right. So I just start hitting him and punching him. And like, next thing I know, I'm just punching him. He's not really punching back, but I'm punching him. <laughs> Yo, I'm, I feel like that's been stored away in the back of my head for 20 years. But it, it, I remember the chair. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Um, so I got, uh, and that's where Mr. Dixon gripped me up for a hot second, and uh, oh, the chokehold. Yeah, pulled military on. Yeah, yeah, pulled me off of him, and uh, yeah, that was how I said goodbye. To it. Which the bitch of it was was that like we were working on shit, like we were trying to do a, a um, we were trying to do a, a remake of California Love, but was it Hick and Love, and we were like trying mm. to rap, but he couldn't rap on beat, so like it wasn't working very well. So, you, you know, listen to this shit too. That's funny. I, I hope so. I hope so. I heard the songs, Chris. All of them. I heard them. I went to his show. He did a show in LA. I went, I still got pictures of that shit. Like, he had, he had the fans um, doing their kind of low rent version of the eight mile climax. 
But, but yeah, money, money's just been around since, since high school, man. Like we had Spanish class together in 2000. I remember him standing up yelling Eminem lyrics and like, he would always just be around. Like we, sometimes he'd just show up. I remember me, Dave and Big Tone, uh, Leo, we'd just be at the movies and money would be there. Um, we just stayed cool after, after school. Like he, um, he came to my baby shower in, in Brooklyn this past wow. year, man. And like we check in and, uh, yeah, he's good about reaching out and shit. Like that's, I'll talk to you if you reach out. Like, and especially for me now being in LA for so long, like the, the East coast friends are dwindling. <laughs> I mean, especially the high school homies, it's like virtually non-existent. So, um, yeah, man, I, I appreciate him checking in and reaching out and all that shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, man, most people just don't, everybody's in their own thing. Nobody, nobody's really overly concerned with what I'm doing and they don't wish me any harm. I mean, some people do, but, for the most part, everybody's just into their own world. But um, yeah, money money's been cool about keeping in contact. Well, I hope he's uh, he's doing well. Like I said, I keep the rap beef, uh, I keep the rap beef strong. So anytime he wants some, <laughs> I can still spit some rhymes. We can we can we can do it anytime. Yeah, I think he's still. I don't know. He might have hung up the mic. He was boxing there for a little bit. Yeah, I saw um, that. That made me worried. <laughs> but but yeah, he might. He probably still spin a little bit. I, he actually linked it with my wife's uh, nephew at our baby shower and a nephew is an aspiring rapper and my wife was like yo you know your your friend has been over there talking with miles the whole night right i'm like yo they about to put a mixtape out like tomorrow the artwork's already done like it's this is the meeting of smith and wesson this is how it starts i told you <laughs> i was gonna take it <laughs> but um that's funny um yeah did you you know do you obviously making it to like a such a visible level? Do you you talk about like people who kind of who wish who wish bad upon you? Do you think about like that type of stuff still in a con you know in a um, present yeah, day form cool. of like they're gonna see this? I can't wait till they, I hope people see this. <laughs> oh, people are strong. Like for the most part, man, it's nothing but a love fest from from people back home, even people I didn't like growing up who I knew didn't like me. I'd rather than just be like, I still hate you, monkey ass. This I still have the same respect for you. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's weird the people that kind of come around who I'm like, we ain't like each other then. Don't try to fake the funk now. Um, but yeah, there were some people who were, it was just like this arc of hate. You know, it was like when I first moved, it was like, well, he ain't going to make it out there. Mm. Then that transition to, well, yeah, I mean, he's partying with celebs and shit. That nigga's still broke though. And now it's, well, of course he made it. He's born with a silver spoon in his mouth. So it's just the, the arc of hate over time, which uh, came from folks that I was, uh, I love, who were like, I thought were close. So it, it was a learning experience for me, as far as friends, some people only really like you in a particular box. If you step outside of that and you make them kind of look, you turn that mirror towards them a little bit, maybe they're thinking about what they're doing or not doing, uh, but it's really their, them promise, not anything I'm doing. Um, yeah. But I, I still don't have uh, time for that. I mean, you're not gonna bring me down because you're doing what you own shit. Uh, but that's that's a low percentage for the most part, and it's just uh, just a lot of support. But as far as like stunting, because I got my, my name out there and I'm able to post announcements, hell yeah! Like, come fuck y'all. I mean, I, I remember all that shit that happened. Yes, I'm petty. Tell them, <laughs> tell them, petty wop. It is petty season. You goddamn right. I think about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah. <laughs> so where did you where did you meet your wife? 
we met uh, through the Spawner friend. We're not even friends anymore. <laughs> um, an ex-coworker of mine, I was meeting up with her for drinks. And she said, hey, come over to this restaurant. I'm with some people. We'll just go get drinks after. So I go to meet her. And my wife, Tembi, was there with two other people. And we just sat, chopped it up for a bit and um, got everybody's number. But I really wanted Tembi's. And so I leave with uh, this coworker. I'm like, yo, what's up with your, your homie Tembi? Is she with anybody? And she's like, I don't know. She's like, but y'all, y'all probably make a cute couple. I'm like, yeah, me too. Um, so we did like the Facebook, social media thing over the next two months, just happy birthday to you and just smiley faces at random places. And then we actually met up at a happy hour thrown by the same former friend. And it was like three hours in and three old fashions it took for me to <laughs> ask her out. And she said no. Um, and I was just persistent. I kept asking and I was looking up dates in real time. And I said, look, we can go see Do the Right Thing at Street Food Cinema and it'll be fun. She was just like, all right, fine. God, yes, we'll go. And then we went on that first date and that was kind of it. And then I took her to uh, my old boss Kenya's 4th of July party. And then we went back and we're watching Jinx on HBO, like a documentary. Mm-hmm. I remember she said she was like, R.I.P. Um, I know, right? <laughs> that motherfucker. But she leaned over and she was like, I was waiting for this all day because we had hit two parties, actually. We had bounced around and then we went and got wings and I bought her some gummy bears and we went and we're watching the Jinx and she was just like, this, this is what I was looking forward to all day. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh, this is it. This is, it was like the second or third date. I was like, this is, this is probably it. And here we are, a baby in the house later. Is that as, as uh, the guy was talking about how he killed them all? Killed them all, of course. In the at the oh, the, I was like, I shouldn't have burped. <laughs> oh man, that dude. So she was. Uh, was your circle like film media based at that point? Yeah, well, I mean, shit. my circle. When I first got to LA, you know, I was hanging out with Brandon and and some other folks and uh, having a good time. But I quickly realized that I just. I needed to kind of find like my, my people, like I was hanging around good people, but like, I, you know, I, I get drunk and make bad decisions. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 Got to find people a little more jaded. <laughs> so it's like, I had to, you really do have to God find your people. You, <laughs> you got to find your people in LA, man. You really do need that village. So it took a little while for me to, to kind of narrow, you know, find, find my people. And my boy Curtis actually moved out here in 2014 from Philly. And he was actually a play cousin to Twigs. So boy wow. Raphael Twigs, yeah. that's how I met him. Like Twigs had his 15th birthday party and we went to World on Wheels in the city. And that's where I met Curtis. So I had been knowing Curtis for a long time. Weren't super tight. But then he hit me up and he's like, yo, I'm moving to LA. We should link up. And once he came out, it was like having family out here. You know, it was just somebody who gets it. Somebody from home and go watch birds games with. And that really kind of, him, along with some uh, some other friends, uh, just really started feeling like, okay, L.A. is home, you know? Mm. And, um, it was, yeah, it changed everything. Because the first few years in L.A. were cool, but I just never really felt, like, settled. But, it, but it, took, it took a few years. That's definitely what I was missing was the that community, the, that group that you felt was, like, your group. I didn't, I'd never found that in California. Like, you said, like, I had Brandon, but then I was like, man, outside of that, like, I haven't really found it and i didn't feel like i could survive without yeah it really does make a world of difference man like we would 
uh, Kurt was staying at this uh, spot downtown and had like a rooftop pool. We were out there every Sunday partying at this pool, you know, and I just bring uh, the aux cord and some fried chicken and Coronas and we just be out there all day. And that, it was a very stressful time for me working at Blackish at that time. It was just, I was over being an assistant. So those Sunday pool parties just kind of got me right for the week, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it, was, it made a big difference. And just the friends I was making through different shows, uh, like my homegirl. And this time I was like couch hopping too, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I had, um, I'm jumping around, but I went to go take a job in Atlanta. I thought I was going to be in Atlanta for like a year until my boss was like, actually, you're not doing that. Just sit tight and wait for us for this next job to come. I'm like, what do you mean sit tight? I already gave it my apartment. So for like that next year and some change, I was just couch hopping and shit. And um, I, I had never done that before. I was borderline homeless. Um, just so I remember living on my homegirl, uh, Tracy's couch, like all summer. And just that's that was really a big step for me learning how to write because Tracy went on to write like Girls Trip and now she has her show Harlem and and all that stuff. So I, I really got to see her writing process, which made me elevate mine. And um, she's part of that village too. So at all these stops, all these shows and all these hardships of couch hopping and being broke, I built that village, you know? And, I would have like, I would have, see, I think at that point I would have figured failure. I failed, gotta, like, that's incredible that you took advantage of it and again yeah you can't you can't uh i don't know i was just again obsessed you know so yeah i was couch hopping and broke but i'm just like i'm employed though i'm on shows i'm around you know kenya and all all these all these people and all this shit so i'm not i'm not far i'm knocking on the door so i i when i was in it i I never realized how bad it was but now being on the other side of it i'm like god damn (laughs) like i was struggling you know, but I had a ball though, thanks to that village. You know, they kept me just feeling safe and like I things weren't so bad. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Bel Air a little bit. Um <laughs> so you've all it's already been uh completed. Yeah. Um what's your experience of one doing this sh- doing a I guess like a, a not a I guess a reboot. I remember seeing yeah. the original trailer when it dropped uh, a bunch of years ago as far as like the 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 homemade one and i thought like wow it's incredible and i was so excited to hear that they were making that will smith was like yeah let's let's just do that um what can you tell me about just that experience the show itself um what to expect what did did you go through let me start from the top because this i love this story um it's just every, it's really a great, I, I tell this story to students that I talk to if I'm on a panel, because it just really shows how Hollywood works. You know, uh, before I mentioned being in that film independent program and uh, the, the short film that I made, the editor of that short, my friend, my homegirl Autumn, who's from Lancaster, you know, she had just moved out here. So we were like fast friends. I took her to the Eagles bar. We were watching Eagles games every Sunday and, and got really close. And then uh, the trailer drops. For, for Bel Air, the fake trailer. And I'm with her and I'm just like, yo, like I got the perfect script for this. I got to meet this dude. I know this is going to be a show. This is going to be a show like yesterday. You know, I was like, but I don't know how to get to this dude. And she looks at me and she's like, you know, that's my boyfriend, right? I'm like, excuse me? And she's like, yeah, send me your script. I'll forward it to him right now. She sent him my script that I mentioned to you called Outside of Philly. Um, she sent it to Morgan right there. He read it like that ne- that night. And then I met him like a couple days later, uh, just for a meeting. And he was like, bruh, we're working over this 
the, the developing the show right now, working with Will, got the showrunner. I don't know when it's going to happen, but when it does, you're in there, you know? So I'm like, cool. So I, I forget about it. I go, I write on Gronish for the year. I check back, you know, uh, checking in with Morgan from time to time, but I check in with him in August and he calls me and it's just like, bro, you're on the show. You meet with the showrunner tomorrow. Like y'all going to have a meeting and then you're in there. Cool, cool. And then hangs up. Talk to the showrunner. And uh, then I talked to Westbrook and, and Universal and then they, they made me an offer. And that was, that's how I got on the show. But you know, had I, had I not had that perfect sample outside of Philly, had I not befriended Autumn in that program or even applied to that program, had I not taken her to see the Eagles, you know what I mean? Like none of that shit would have happened. So that's Hollywood in a nutshell. You gotta be ready and you gotta accept the magic of just shit falling into place outside of your control. Mm-hmm. You know? But you have to always be working to make sure that magic happens, you know? So we get on the show and it's, it's cool at the start. And I, um, I quickly realized that there's like this three-headed monster of Westbrook Universal and Peacock that we're going to have to kind of get these scripts through. And I'm sharing this because you could look this up. It was on deadline. Uh, we ended up losing. We lost the one showrunner that I interviewed with initially. He, he stepped away from the project uh, for creative differences. And then the next showrunner they brought on, uh, she ended up leaving too. Mm. And then uh, two of the co-executive producers who were like the second in command, they got bumped up the showrunner. So it was a rocky start at the beginning because you're really you're trying to nail down the voice of the show. And um, this is like Peacock's flagship show. So they were really hard on us as far as the notes and just getting that first episode perfect. So those first few weeks, first two months were super stressful, mm. you know, uh, just getting it right. But once um, we got approval for that first script, we just started rolling, man. And the, the stories were coming in. And uh, that's that's been the best room I've been in so far, you know, just being able to contribute my POV, all of my Carlton shit, you know what I mean? And then still like pulling in Philly stuff and sharing these, these personal stories. And I don't know how much it actually got in. Um, but even just the will stuff too, come Philly going to LA and the differences of it and, and how that affects you just, just living here. It was just, I feel like I was just pouring out my heart. It felt like I was on a, on a couch in a therapy session talking about all this shit, you know? Um, and I, I, I really hope that it, it elevated the scripts. And uh, we just had such a dope writer's room with a lot of smart people, man. Like it was, I didn't want to leave. Like I was really trying to get extended and be there through production, but uh, they just didn't have the money for it since they were like turning through showrunners and still had to pay them. There was like no money to extend writers. So I had to leave to go work on this other show and production is still going on for Bel Air, but I'd still check in and watching the dailies and stuff and it's looking great. But uh, by far, that's the best thing I worked on, man. It's just like, just the parallel journeys from Philly to LA and and all that stuff and the, the serendipity around how it happened. Like mm-hmm. I can't wait to go back. Like it's um it's a dream to write on that, man. I'm super thankful to Morgan uh, just for bringing me on, you know. Um, and I'm just such a better writer now because of it, because that was my first drama. And I feel like that was supposed to be my first drama, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's just it was such a great learning experience. Was there anything that you brought? You thought you were going to bring that you learned? being that this was like your first drama. Mm-hmm. Um, am I correct in saying maybe this is the biggest thing you've, you've, you've done, you've, you've yeah. written? Yeah. Anything you brought to the, you thought going in that you learned, oh, that's not right. That's not how it goes. Or at least in this place, that, that doesn't fly. And you had to like change or maybe abandon a thought um, or an idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, coming from comedy, 
uh, you have to be a gunslinger. You, you know, cause it's all about jokes and just, it's, uh, everybody's fast, everybody's witty. So you just have to outwit the next person. So you just are pitching with a machine gun, you know, but with drama, you're more of a sniper, you know, you have to take, you have to be a little more thoughtful with your pitches. You have to kind of pitch full scenes and kind of always keep in mind where it's going. What's the, the really have to lead with character. How does this push the character forward? How does this get them to where they're going? Uh, so you just have to be a little bit more thoughtful. So I had to kind of slow down on the machine gun pitching and just be, just be more of a sniper. You know, that was, that was the big thing. Mm. Do you, uh, do you still keep in contact with, uh, with Hick and people? I mean, you said it's kind of like dwindling out a bit. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely tougher now. Uh, my actually the best man, uh, at my wedding, uh, is my guy TJ who was, he wasn't there when you were there. He was a freshman when I was a senior. Yeah. He, um, he, but he's the brother of Lindsay Edwards. I don't know if you know Lindsay. She was on the track team. Uh, she was a year behind me. But as, you know, I've been friends with Lindsay since high school and we all, we stayed close. So when I was still in DC, her brother had just graduated in 2009 and was like, hey, my brother's moving to DC. Can you like look after him and shit? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like I remember him. And we just met and we're like, Best friends ever since, you know. Yeah. So um, it's still my guy. You know, he comes out to LA and and all the time. Um, so him and Lindsay for sure, I'm probably closest to. And then my guy uh, Mike Collarges, who I've referenced a bunch. Um, I don't know. Do you remember Mike? Like he he took Japanese. He might have taken Japanese with you. Okay, you know, I might know him by face. I'll have to look. Yeah. So Mike and I have been been super tight since sixth grade. Like it was on some. You like Demolition Man? So do I. <laughs> and that was, that was oh it. shit, Demolition Man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he he had a recorder, so he he recorded it at home on his phone, and he'd bring it to class, and we just listened to Demolition Man, like in Mrs. Watson Bay's class. Um, yeah, so Mike and I are still pretty tight. Like when I go home, it's like I know I'm seeing Mike. I know if Lindsay and TJ are in town, I'm gonna go see them, and then I gotta go see my cousin's kids, uh, my cousin Dave's kids, and like Godfather to his oldest son. So those are like the big three, like. Mike Edwards clan and my godson Malachi. Okay. And yeah, Tara is your cousin, right? Tara's my cousin. Yep. We were in the same grade uh, for all the years. What's it like to have like a side family in the school too? Uh, that was complicated. <laughs> Tara and I were really tight in middle school, kind of fell off in high school. We, uh, we went through like a rough patch where we didn't really talk at all my sophomore year which is pretty impressive considering our lockers were right next to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But then our grandmother died our junior year, and we got back pretty close after that. Like, I gave her, like, rides to school all senior year, uh, so we kind of got back in a good place. Um, But then, you know, Dave was there, too. Dave is my first cousin, and uh, he came. What was that? That was junior year. We're talking Dave Atkins. Dave Atkins, yep. That was huge. I love Dave. Like Dave was awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. Like we were like brothers, you know, like him and his brothers lived with my family when we were kids. And um then they they moved and bounced to like the Poconos and shit and like we're gone, which was like super traumatizing. Like my, my sister Val and I come home one day and like, oh, where where are they at? And they're like, oh, they're gone. Like, they're what? So it was like spending the next 10 years trying to get them back, you know. Wow. Um, they would come visit and stay with us. I remember we would always have all these plans of trying to get them to stay. Like it was freezing cold outside. So we dumped water around their mom's 
wheels of her car thinking that she'd get frozen and they couldn't leave. Or we'd dump a lot of cornbread into the toilet and be like, yo, Dave is sick. Y'all can't go back home. So when, but they would always, we just get in trouble for clogging up the toilet. And um, Dave and I would always like write to each other. We'd write letters. And then once uh, cell phones were introduced, it was like the late nineties, my parents had like a cell phone or, or like phone cards. When we started working, we would just get phone cards. We talk every night all the time and just dream about like, yo, wouldn't it be cool if we can go to school with each other? So all like 10 years of this, and then he finally comes to school with me. Like, yo, he couldn't tell yeah. me shit. I was like, I had my brother there and I, I know I lost friends off of that because I was like, I got my boy here. I don't care about what none of y'all think anymore. That's, that's, we, we, we out kind of thing, you know? And it was, it was amazing having him there. It's just, yeah. Uh, I remember, uh, I used to, in the, in the hallways when we had TV lab and Brandon was in that and like, we used to hang out with, with Dave and stuff. And we were doing like a, you guys really doing a hip hop cipher. Uh, type of thing. Oh, you talking about Brandon Shoulder off the dome? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, guy, like everyone used to hang in the hallways after school and like cipher, yeah. uh, and just flow and all that. And uh, I, I used to love talking to Dave about music. And I remember one time I, I spit a, I spit a verse that was uh, from Exhibit off of uh, "What's the Difference Between Me and You" mm-hmm. uh, from Chronic 2001. But he, it's like that's not like a big song off that album. So when I start kicking it, and I, it's like my favorite verse in rap. And I remember kicking like the first couple couple bars, and he was like, "I was like, yo, I stay with it. Why are you trying to perpetrate play with it? Never knew about the next level until Dre did it. I stay committed. Why you motherfuckers babysit it? I smash the critics like an overhand right from Riddick." And he was like, "That's you." And I was, <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. yeah, why not? Let's, let's and I was one. like, oh, I wanted to so bad. Like, yeah, it's me, man. Because I, I just knew, like, I, I just knew that verse so well, and I just used to kill it. And I wanted to, and I was like, (laughs) I was like, it's not, but I could be. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, I I haven't thought about that forever. Yeah, he used to freestyle. It'd be like him and Forrest. I think Maurice Johnson was there. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I would do the one beat I knew, which was, uh, oh, no, that was before that time. So it was the, it was like the Mary J. Blige, Jada Kiss, because that was before the clips grinding, because that was the, one of two beats that I know. Those are the only two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mining and then the, the Jada Kiss. That's funny. But uh, but no, man, they, having Dave at school was just like, yeah, dream country. Because we that's something we had talked about for years, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, and we're still like, yeah, I'm godfather to his son. I love his kids. And I still have a great relationship with them. Like they came out to LA for my first, for my episode of Family Reunion, like the live taping. Like they came out and were able to be in the audience for that. And, so I got to, it's cool being able to share all this Hollywood shit with them. They'd be like, oh, Uncle Hank out there in Hollywood doing it, you know? So yeah. it's nice to share that with them, man. He's got great kids. That's awesome. Um, before you ask me about that, I do have to tell you something, though. I do have to apologize. Because yeah. uh, you've talked about this a bunch on different uh, interviews. And it's something that I remember back when it happened, but it's like just immaturity. I wasn't able to connect it. I remember just being in class with you like the one, the TV lab class we had in certain days, I'd be like, God damn, Brad's being an asshole today. What the fuck is wrong with him? And I was never able to connect it to Ray dying. I was never able, like, and I, I remember Ray, I remember getting a call from Gina Casanova, who was crying, saying Ray she just was, died. She was good friends with Kim. Yeah, yeah, she was bawling, just saying, you know, Ray died. I'm like, Ray, I know Madison Avenue. It like was a light bulb. 
that went off and I, I ran into where we keep like our photo albums. And I pulled out the old Little League photo of us on the same uh, baseball team. Yeah. Right? And that shit just hit me. I'm like, God, damn. And I knew that was that was your boy. And but I was never able to connect it. Like there'd be certain times like, you know, most days you was cool, but some days you would snap. And I was just be like, oh, what's, what's wrong with him today? Like, I could be in the deck. But oh. it, oh. I know it, it was right, man, because you, you say it like that. Year, and I remember it was the bulk of the year. You just weren't, you weren't yourself, but I was never able to connect it. But I wish I would have taken the time just to been like, hey, bro, like, sorry for, for you. Just something, you know what I mean? Because it was just, I can't imagine losing. And I'm sitting here talking about, about how close I was with Dave, and that's how close you were with Ray. I can't imagine losing him, so I don't. I don't even know what that experience was, man. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I wholeheartedly do. Uh, I would say that if I were to guess, I was probably just being an asshole. I mean, who knows, <laughs> right? We're at we were at that age where it's hard to know what your emotional issues, oh, and, yeah. you know, is correlating to your behavioral uh, actual output. Um, so at that point, I never even would have known. If, you know, like Miss McCracken, Miss McCracken talked about also just like, you know, when I would have issues and she felt wish she had taken it a different way. And it's like, I never even took it as like I was grieving and this is why I was acting that way. I literally, when when mentioning that we were we were doing this conversation today, I had mentioned to someone that I said that, like, I feel like I used to pick on you uh, in TV lab, more of a sense of like, um, you played like you were cool playing like the the clown not like uh not like you were a class clown but like you were cool playing like the one to be picked on almost like say something and you'd be like like i remember uh you had a crush on uh you had a crush on a girl in tv lab and i'd be like oh okay okay rico suave or something like that like <laughs> oh okay got your shit all lined up i see you know what i mean like but you were like cool like oh man like you were like you played along with it that's why uh, I never I've never thought of it as as being picked on. I thought it's like just kind of Brad being Brad kind of thing. And I remember I did have a crush on that assistant teacher though. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. But yeah, I didn't think um I mean, I don't know. It's possible that like every day was like a, a different day of emotional roller coaster for me, but in my retrospect, I think I just like took you as like someone that I knew growing up and and mm -hmm. look you as like younger, the younger kid and like oh, let me, you know, it was always like, and that was part of like my black experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like every, like you're always trying to knock on somebody. You're yeah. always trying to get a jab in at someone. So I was, and and part of my immaturity back then, and and uh, I've gotten I think better at um, picking your moments. I never knew how to pick moments. I always just came to my head. That's funny. Say it, and I would yeah. just say it, uh, and yeah, it wasn't never, always fun at everyone. Never had a filter. So I think that's why I always chalked it up like, oh, that's just. It's Brad being Brad kind of thing. I mean, don't take it right. And I see you do it to the other people, so it never felt personal, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember TV Lab was fun. I mean, it was a good time. It was but a blast. I, just, I do remember just those, those few times when it did, it felt a little darker from you, and that's why I wish I had the maturity in the moment to recognize, like, probably going through some shit right now that not even he recognizes he's going through, you know? Yeah. Worst creative idea you've ever had. Hey. I wrote a pilot about uh, an ex of mine who was a Carnival Cruise performer. She sang and danced on the Carnival Cruise. So I did this overly soapy kind of uh, love boat meets 90210 
thing following the performers on this cruise ship. And it was just a lot. (laughs) 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 I mean, my ex loved it. She read it. But yeah, that shit got no traction at all. I like I buried that script somewhere. But like, yeah, but we were breaking up at the time. So I think it was just cathartic for me to, I got to write myself as the clean ex-boyfriend who can't let the protagonist go and be great, you know? So there was purpose to it. But yeah, I think that might've been the worst. Uh, how often are you the subject of your own creative output? Your own creative uh, pitches? Just, just twice. Twice? Just, yeah, just those two scripts I, I mentioned. Um, uh, but yeah, I wrote a pilot about my sister Val, um, which I think came out okay. I'm not going to go into details of that. She'll kill yeah, me. Keep but, it. <laughs> yeah. but I wrote a pilot about my dad too. But it's like, I always used to joke on my dad about being an airline pilot. I'd be like, we have no idea what you're, what you're doing. You're away from here. You could be a hitman. You could be a serial killer. So like, oh, wait a minute. An airline pilot that moonlights as a hitman, you know, kind of like Dexter, if Dexter were a pilot kind of thing, you know, but not a, Serial killer. Um, yeah, I always try to write about somebody I know or somebody close to me, except for um, I just wrote a movie recently. I wrote my first movie, which was an adaptation of, uh, well, not really adaptation, but it was inspired by my boy uh, Justin's story for ESPN about Marvin Gaye trying out for the Detroit Lions. Whoa, so, whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> yeah, Marvin Gaye tried out for the Detroit Lions um, way back, and it was such a great story. <laughs> And I had been sitting on it for five years and I was finally like, no, I'm, I'm going to write this. I just wrote it on spec. And, but I had to do a lot of research for, it. you know, I went to Detroit and went to Hitsville and went by Marvin's old house, Barry Gordy's house and read books on uh, just different people involved with Motown. And I interviewed the Detroit Lions player who helped him get the, the um, tryout. And it was the most research I'd ever done for, for a project. And yeah, I just wrote, wrote the pilot. I mean, wrote the, the feature. And you just did this in your spare time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in between shows and yeah, it was just I was hell bent on writing writing a feature. I wanted to get a feature agent and start getting more into the the movie world because I wasn't didn't want to be so reliant on on TV money. I wanted to start getting some rewrite money. So I, like, I need a sample. So that was my first sample. And, and it was actually I was developing it with Angela Bassett's company until they announced that Dr. Dre was doing his own Marvin Gaye biopic for like 80 million with the support of Barry Gordy and they had like the whole music catalog. So it just killed my shit. Um, but it's still been a good sample for me. And I've been able to get yeah. like other opportunities based on it. You know, but, Nothing with Dre ever comes out on time ever. <laughs> I still sucks. think there's room for mine. Cause I guarantee they're not doing a Marvin Gaye uh, trying out for the lions movie. You know? Yeah. That sounds incredible. That should, that you, I mean, that could even be a 30 for 30. Yeah. You've yeah, done, you've done, it sounds like you've done like, at least a third of the research, maybe more, like that could be a 30 for 30, which filmmakers get to do. Sure. I mean, the probably, I don't know the guy who wrote the ESPN story, my guy, Justin is, he's probably already working on that. Cause it definitely should be. But um, just incredible. the way like that, the story, you know, cause the whole reason he tried out, Tammy Terrell had just died. He was, didn't want to do music anymore. And he was living in Detroit and started going to a lot of Lions games and playing with these guys. And wait, 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 wait. It's past his prime, Marvin Gaye? This is like 30-year-old Marvin Gaye. Holy shit. Yeah. It's like it's like full-on Motown star, like yeah, booze, yeah. booze and drugs Marvin Gaye. Yeah, Once sort, the- of, sort of. He kind of stopped to get 
ripe for this tryout. You know, that's what got him off the, the drugs and everything. So dude, he got clean and put on like 30 pounds of muscle. Like he was <laughs> going for it. But he wanted to play football. He wanted to play football. But of course he didn't get it. But this is how he coped with getting over Tammy Terrell. So that's the 50,000 foot view of it. Like everybody copes with death in a different way. And this is how Marvin coped with death. And had he not done this, he wouldn't have gone on to make what's going on. So we have like this B story of what's going on uh, being made by, you know, the songwriters Al Cleveland and Obi Benson who, who wrote the song and were trying to get Marvin to sing it. So you have the football merging with the creation of the song. Wow. So that was football. the rebirth. Yeah, that was what's going on was like kind of the rebirth. On that path, not Motown, but very close because Michael Bivens ended up uh, running it. But, you mm-hmm. know, you worked on New Edition script coordinator. Is that right? That was the the position. Uh, when I saw it, I remember you talking about it uh, online, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Wow, they're doing a new edition biopic." Um, first of all, new edition was like the group I grew up on, like as a kid oh, yeah. with my dad, like learning the steps. But it had been absent from my brain. Of course, like I always remember, Mister Telephone Man was my jam, and I knew and I knew all the the classics and. But the nuances that were hit in this biopic, the fact that it's three, I just watched it again uh, this summer. Okay. And my um, wife and I, we just watched it like in the past month. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess probably August, September, I, I just rewatched it. Um, and watching it again, for, first of all, it for me, like it legitimized BET. Mm, the, that's real. Yeah. yeah, man. Like a three part like watch along that people are, you know, that people are live tweeting. Um, That was like the first time I really, you know, like BT had some shows, um, but nothing that like hit my radar as far as like, oh, I missed out on live tweeting this. Like everyone's in on this. Um, It was just so, I don't know how else to shockingly not what I ever seen on BET before. The music, the production, uh, Wood Harris being in the fucking film, yeah. like everything about that thing. Like, one of those, one of those films that when you see it, you're almost disappointed in seeing the original, the actual members of the group because it's not the guys in the in the movie because yeah. they body that shit. You, they were I can't so I worked on that man. Like, it was yeah, like, man, and that's why I was like, I was like, yo, Hank is on this. Yeah. This is. You know, Bel Air is like a whole new level, but at that point for me, like I was like, I, I it's new edition, man. Like, and 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 you, you guys nailed it. You nailed it. Like it was so good. The the performances, the vocals, the way that you guys did the recordings, um, everything on that on that show on that movie was just all three parts was incredible. Thanks, man. It was just so much work. And shout out to Abdul Williams, who wrote it uh, over the course of 10 years, because this this was originally supposed to be done back in like 2006. And uh, it just took a while to close all the deals for the new edition members. And things were shifting at BET. So it, it took 10 years for this thing to come to life. And he had just been revising that script over and over again, you know, uh, interviewing all the members of, of the group and, you know, hearing these stories, which some of the group members didn't even know, he would go back to Mike and be like, well, you know, Riz said this, uh, it happened. He's like, he, he said that? I didn't, well, I didn't know that happened. You know, so they were, it was therapy for all of them. Cause you know, you're, you're 
known each other for this long, your family, and it's kind of a dysfunctional family. You know, there's a lot of bad blood, but a lot of love too, you know? Um, so Abdul really nailed that, that 200 plus page behemoth of a script that I had to proofread all the goddamn time. <laughs> um, but for me coming into that, like I tell everybody, as far as an assistant, like even not as an assistant, just in general, that's up there. One of the best things I've worked on. If Bel Air's number one, New Edition's probably number two. You know, because we, I'd be sitting there doing my work, and the rehearsal stage is right next to our production office, and uh, the actors would be in there rehearsing, like the dance steps, all day, twelve hours a day. They're in there, and if you have to listen to the same songs on repeat for twelve hours, like New Edition ain't a bad, ain't a bad catalog. You know, it was like, if it isn't love, is this the end? Um, what's the other one? Stay in the rain. Can I stay in the rain? Yeah, can you stay in the rain? rain. Like, and you're just, on the 11th hour, you're still just like sitting there, if it isn't love, just bobbing. You know? I'm right now, I was just like, in my head, I was just kind of like. Yeah, yeah, you're doing, you know the dance steps, just sitting there, shoulder work going. <laughs> um, but in New Edition, we're there every day, most of them. It was like Bell Bib DeVoe was there every day, like Ronnie. Yeah, Ronnie, Ricky, Mike were there every single day. Riz was there more often than not. Uh, Bobby was never there. Um, I think he, had, <laughs> he had issues with one of the band, with one of the group members. So I think he was staying away. He came one or two days. Johnny Gill was never there. Met him at the rap party. Wow. But, yeah, but being there every day with Mike, Ron, and, and Ricky, and hearing these stories, mostly mm. revolving around Bobby, you know, they were just. Uh, it was so surreal just to i'm like and i told mike i'm like mike like my uh, when i was a kid and poison was number one on the radio for x amount of weeks like uh, my uh, my bedtime was eight o'clock and power 99 did their top 10 right before eight and my dad would come in and turn on the stereo because he knew poison was about to come on and me and my sister would run in and be doing the running man to it i was like for however many weeks it was number one on the radio and Mike just he gave me a hug. He's like, man, I never get tired of hearing that shit, man. Like it, they are such good dudes who are so grounded. Like they make everybody feel like a million bucks, you know. And it's it feels genuine. It doesn't feel Hollywood at all. So that was probably the best part is just sitting at lunch with with Mike, Ronnie, and Ricky, just hearing stories, you know. That's so dope. Yeah. And then Wood, Wood Harris. Oh my God, yeah, that, man. You know, like so, the Wire is my favorite show ever. Well, of course, I mean. Uh... Yeah. And Avon's just about like my favorite character. I just finished uh, rewatching the whole series uh, last yeah. week uh, for the ninth third or for the ninetieth time. <laughs> um, I watch that show every year. Um, it's just Wood Harris is one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, I know it's Alan Iverson's favorite actor, which makes me feel more emboldened to <laughs> to promote Wood Harris as my favorite actor of all time. Man, just ugh, incredible. He and he's such a professional, man. He has so many questions for each uh, scene. You know, he have questions about the dialogue, which can be annoying with the wrong actor. But Wood was always asking smart questions. He was always trying to get to the root of what the character wanted, what we were supposed to convey in the scene. And mm. he would, um, you know, we'd workshop it and get the right the right dialogue to him. But um, and he didn't really interact with me too much. He interacted with Abdul, the writer. But our, our relationship changed when uh, he was doing the uh, the wedding scene at the end, and, and he had to give a speech. Now Abdul couldn't be on set right away because uh, he was dealing with some family stuff, so it was just me there. And they're like, "Hank, like Wood needs to go over. He wants to uh, have the script or like his dialogue on a piece of paper, so he can reference that as if he's 
reading off of it while giving a speech. We need somebody to write it down and go over with him. Mm. So I had another assistant write it down. Then I, I run it to him and like the clock is ticking because we need to, to shoot. It's money time. Everybody's waiting. So I'm sitting there. I'm talking to, to Wood on stage and he's going through it with me. I'm like, all right, you want to come in on this? And you want to hit these? Like, wait, do I hit this? I was like, no, 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 don't worry about that. Like, come in on that, hit that part hard. And then uh, then you can go out on that. And he's like, all right, boom, thanks, Hank. I'm like, all right. And then I look, and the whole, all the extras, uh, you know, the crew, director, everybody's just staring at us, right? Because they're waiting to say action. And I'm like, oh, shit. Lala Anthony's sitting there cracking up, laughing at my face. And then they're like, get out the way, Hank. We're trying to shoot. So I, I run off. And then he, he did it in one take, man. He killed it. And every day after that, he'd be like, yo, hey, like, what up? And then we we chop it up. Um, but yeah, that was probably the best moment for me because it's, it's Will Harris. Yeah. yeah, man. Above the rim. Man, like, yeah, just, and remember the Titans. I like the remember the ti- Yeah, man, remember the Titans. Uh, yeah, paid in full. Paid in full, yeah. Yeah, I'm working with Makai Pfeiffer now. I haven't met him yet, but he's on the show that I'm on now, so I'm, I'm dying to meet him. Um, I even work something into the script where it's like I describe it as he flashes his watch in the most paid in full way. You know, it's <laughs> I'm broke, baby. Ain't got no money. Uh, but so, yeah, it's cool to work with a lot of these folks. Some some people who celebs that I had the possibility or opportunity to meet. I try not to because I don't want to demystify it. I want to kind of forever look at them uh, and, and with fan eyes because a lot of times you meet people and they, they let you down. But Wood, Wood did not let me down at all, man. That's, that's a good dude. Who are you actively avoiding in the world? I I didn't approach John Witherspoon. He was on an episode of Blackish. I went down to set just to see him, and I was standing at a distance. And I was like, you know what? I'm this is good enough. I don't need to check. And I heard nothing but great things about him. Mm. Uh, but even you know, he just died recently, and I'm like, I'm still good with that decision, man. I, 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 that's somebody who I just think is so funny. I love everything he does. I wanted to keep those fan eyes, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. You still have uh, the where the the whereabouts to kind of still implement that um, in what you're doing. That you kind of want to still be able to be a fan of some things. Because yeah, everybody lets you down, man. We're all human. Nobody is how you see them. You know, I think Robert Downey Jr. said he loves when he looks in people's eyes and he he sees them think like, "Oh, he's not Iron Man." You know, he's like, "I'm just an asshole." You know, mm-hmm. got lucky. But, um, but yeah, some people I just want to keep that that Hollywood view of them. Yeah. What's uh what's your your end not end goal cuz this industry doesn't ever stop evolving but what do you want to at the end of the day what do you want to accomplish on your own do you think? What is is it a studio? Is it being a producer? Is it director? Is it being a writer? Is it eventually being on screen? Well, I had a I had a plan. I'm kind of sticking to it a little bit. I'm making good progress with it. Uh, like uh, my 30s were kind of devoted to writing. Uh, my 40s, I'm going to try directing, you know, uh, which is getting scary now because that's that's approaching. <laughs> I mean, um, we'll be 39 in, in May. Uh, so I got to get this directing cooking. My wife is already like, you know what's happening when you're 40? You gonna? She's already like, well, you got to look into this, you got to look into that because she's already directing. So I'm already kind of shadowing her. She's prepping for her, her uh, movie she's about to direct. Um, so I'm always asking her questions. So but it's nice to feel that that nervousness. You know, I, I'm, I'm not like at a point now of my writing where I'm like, oh, I've nailed this, I'm done, because you're always getting better. And I always feel like there's something I can learn, but directing legit scares the shit out of me, which lets me know that that's the right direction. 
Yeah. You know? um, so that's I'm looking forward to that. But for right now, I feel like I'm I've been doing pretty good with this the, the writing plan. You know, I'm, I'm working nonstop. Uh, my wife and I we just sold a show to Amazon. I don't know if I could share that. That's fine. I won't name what the project is, but yeah, okay. I can say that. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be developing that show this year, and hopefully it'll, it'll be on at some point. Um, I'm, I'm rewriting a movie with a production company right now. And what else? I'm pitching another show with A&E Studios. I feel like I'm, I'm right where I need to be on, on the writing journey, you know? And so hopefully Tembi and I can be co-creating this show soon, you know? Um, and yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm good, man. And honestly, the goal for me ultimately is I never want to have to take a job. Uh, I know a lot of older writers who have kids in private school and college and they got to take gigs on bad Disney shows just to pay the bills. I never want to, I never want to do that. So Tim and I are just looking at how to, you know, just get some passive income coming in outside of this business. You know, I'm, honestly, I'm looking at like laundry mats and shit down in like Paramount, California and Tim B, like we're looking at other properties Like we just bought a house in LA. We're talking about buying some in Brooklyn next year. Maybe yeah. Some Atlanta, you know, we just, we never want to feel like we have to work. We just want to do projects that we're excited about, you know? Um, so that's why passive income is, Passive income is a short-term goal, and long-term is just directing and doing projects that we're excited about. That's dope. Yeah, let me tell you, my favorite line is "Nobody likes a bragger," but <laughs> but when you say it like honestly, as it's extremely inspirational and like makes me think at any moment, like I need to just just bang out my shit and just keep grinding on it, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It's just a uh, certain amount of pride that that I just seeing you doing projects makes me so fucking happy, man. I can't even like express it to you like how happy as someone that like attempted to get into that world and just seeing not just that you're in it, but that you're do- working on these projects of, you know, things that we grew up with. Yeah. Um, it just like it makes my heart like just happy, man. No, I, I appreciate that, man. I hope it doesn't come off as, as bragging. <laughs> no, no, I know. I say it in jest. I say it in jest, but I, I do like to say that to people when they're when they're giving you too much too much good news. I go, well, no one likes a bragger. When you when you say those things, for me, like as those are things I recognize. You know what I mean? Yeah. Selling selling projects and and working with with distribution companies and, and all that shit. Just like and the fact that your wife is in the industry as well, and you've got like these similar goals. Yeah. Um, that's just like, man, so powerful. Oh, she she is a monster, man. She Michael Jordan in this relationship, man. I'll be happy being Dennis Rodman. I mean, she she is just, uh, she inspires me every day. The fact that she, like, I see her in meetings on Zoom while she's breastfeeding our son, and she's just, like, real animated, like, oh, we got to do this shot instead of that shot. And that, like, God damn. Like, she's, um, yeah, she, she's killing it. Um, but we're both, like, I just like the fact that we're growing together. Like, we met when we were both just getting started, like we, we got our first writing gigs at the exact same time yeah. and we've just been, been growing together, man. So it's, it's a great thing. That's you know? fun, man. I, I look forward to just continuing to, to look out for everything that you're, that you're involved with, man. In, in I, any I role. appreciate it, man. Yeah. And if you like, if you dust off that script, like for real, like just, I don't know what, how much time you had, but like rewriting stuff, you can submit it to like Austin film festival and ABFF and Sundance, like, set those as goals and try to write it and submit it and see if you get any traction, you know? Like, I just need, I need to do it. You know, when you talk about a lot of those, those situations where you just kind of have these ideas and you write it and you put it out, it's like, I've been in that boat, you know, 400 times and I don't give myself the credit. And I think it's just for me. And then I, I put it away again. 
and mm-hmm. I need to just, I always think that people in your world, in, I say it in your world, like I can't, it's not touchable, but in the world of, of Hollywood, but like, I always think that people in, in that world know something that I don't. And when I hear you talk about it, it just kind of reminds me of that vibe I had in college of, oh, like 60% of these people don't actually know it's it's time and opportunity, but the 40% with the real talent, if you keep putting yourself in those situations at some point, yeah. you're going you're gonna to hit something. Like you said, you know, all these different steps that you've laid out along the way that maybe weren't the bump, but was just a step. I got to kind of keep reminding myself that those things exist and you have to just keep playing the game so that when it comes, yeah, yeah. you can jump in. Yeah, it's just, uh, I tell everybody, it's who can keep their hand on the fire the longest. And a lot for a lot of years, I was just out working the next man. You know, I was just, I was like, all right, if I work hard enough, I'm going to keep working. But, and that was fine for a few of those assistant years, but then I realized, okay, if I'm going to move up, the writing's got to get in good shape. Like I have opportunities to move up, but the writing's not there. I think I had like a spec script of Archer, you know, because um, early on when I was at the game, uh, Mara, who had been Mary Jane, like we were talking in, in the, the game room and I forgot where I was for a second. I got real animated talking about a top there. And I was like, no, because it's this, you got to do that. And that's what this shit means. And I see her over there looking at me like this. Mm. And then her um, assistant, well, not her assistant, like the VP of her production company, called me late, later that day. It's like, hey, Mara's taking an interest in you and she wants you to maybe write on being Mary Jane. Do you have a sample? Didn't have that sample ready. I mean, all I have is that Archer spec. So that let me know that can never happen again. I got to get yeah. multiple samples. I got to be ready for that, for that moment when somebody sees me, you know? Um, so it's hard work will keep you working, but writing those scripts and, and showing people that you're worth that investment, that'll get you moving up, you know? That's my, uh, that is my, like, I've got the ideas and I've never, I don't ever put in the constant work on the script to, so that exactly that, that exact situation, that would be my situation. Do you have it? No. (laughs) Great idea. I've got it. I could pitch it to you in four and a half, but I don't have it written. Yeah. Cause I mean, writing is rewriting too, man. Like a script is never done. Like I'll, I'll read stuff. I wrote a couple of years ago, which I thought was Shakespeare. And I read it now. I'm like, oh my God, I was illiterate. <laughs> I mean, like, what was I, what was I doing? But I love that feeling because that lets me know I've grown as a writer. Yeah. You know, but uh, script is never, never done. I've been working on that that pilot uh, hitman script for like nine years now, and I still ain't crack it. I love you know? that. Yeah. I love, I there. love that idea too, dude. Yeah, and writing, and that's the big thing with writing is like you, you write that first draft, like that's a vomit draft. You you haven't even really written it yet. You got to get into that, you know, just the revisions, and it just never stops until you shoot it and then you fix it and post. <laughs> I never got that, you know, 15 years ago. I remember I used to write shit and like send it in for classes and stuff, and like my professor would be like, "Keep going, keep." I'm like, this "Shit is good," yeah. and I go back to it a couple years later. I'm like, "Oh wow, this is so oh, yeah, bad." Yeah. <laughs> he's like not quite ready yet i'm like i'm right about i'm about to go to like 110 pages on this he's like keep it at 35 keep it at 35 <laughs> well this this is uh you know i don't have the exact one and i gotta tell you i had to do a double take because i haven't seen you i haven't seen you in this way in so long <laughs> i hope this shows up well here let's see what you. the hair was looking like uh, oh yeah, that's when I started growing. Uh, 
remember that hair. Because I feel like in uh, so I feel like though, so this would have been taken probably the year before, right before. Because I feel like by the time I graduated, you had a full fro. It was like yeah, the fro was coming and going. Yeah, I had it all through sophomore year. Didn't have it so much junior year until track. But yeah, the fro the fro was coming and going. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, being that it's uh, it's the junior year, I don't have your quotes or your initials that you would have put in there. But did I did I sign it? I feel like I signed your yearbook. Oh, I think you did actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. You remember that? Let me find it real quick because I feel like I've looked at this enough times now that I know that you're in here. Let's see. There's Miles in there. I should have pulled it. Thank you for remembering that because I would have ended this and not even. <laughs> I know you're in here somewhere. Pretty sure I did. I feel confident about it. At least I hope I did. Here you go. This is this is a pretty good uh, entry. Well, yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Yeah, it's got some. Yeah, my writing was forever trash. What can I say? But all right. I'm, all I'm right. not going to read it, but at least it was a few paragraphs. All right. So Brad. What can I say, buddy? I've known you all my life. You haven't changed at all over the years, and I'm glad. I can really, uh, I can, rec I, rec uh, I can recall times I wanted to kick you in your head, but that's just me and you. That's just me. That's just how me and you work. Uh, you're my boy, though, and you'll always be my boy. I still want my five dollars, punk. Good luck after high school, Hank. I don't remember what the five dollars was for. I can only imagine. Well, now, neither do I, man. But in um, thinking with interest, that's got some good bread coming to me. Well, <laughs> 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 I'm a little proud of myself. That was a little more thoughtful than I. I thought that was yes. That was it. We had. I'm telling you, the TV lab was like where we we spent you know the whole year kicking it. Yeah, yeah. We. I remember you mentioned in the senior class show, talking. About, we sat next to each other. Oh. Because I still I have the tape, which I still need to convert. And I'm screaming. I, you, I hear you laughing next to me and yelling the entire time. Right? That's how I always remember you were sitting next to me. Oh, but, we gotta. Um, the second I convert that, I gotta get it to you. I got a tape too, and like I, I, I've got a bunch of VHS tapes. I just want to like convert over just so I yeah. have them. So I, we got to do that. This that's my 2022 goal. Yeah, convert I mean, Jeff Davis asked me for like once every five years. I'm just like, I'll get to it and. Uh, <laughs> all right that's my goal that's my goal for 2022 to get all these tapes converted and get them out for people to see to be fair i'll be honest i'm kind of embarrassed to do it because teenage hank was like zooming in on all the girls <laughs> i got tapes like that too man <laughs> i got some ones where i know i was like interviewing amanda dargy and i just like went in on the zoom and <laughs> sorry amanda oh, that was a that was a good senior class show because you had um brooke johnson doing the um back that ass so i got mm -hmm. that too mm -hmm. um yeah I'm gonna put all this out there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's I can't believe I just remembered that. I have not thought about that in a long time. That's great shit. <laughs> Last thing, I feel like we've been trying to end this forever. How come you didn't do the senior class show? I thought you were gonna do it. Uh do what exactly? I thought you were gonna be a part of it. I was surprised that you were um, um was there it any was talk about. It was hard because Ray had died, and oh, I think yeah. at the time I was signed up to do. Brandon had done like the dan uh, dancing through the years of music or something like that, right? Right, right. And I think I was signed up when I think like Coop was in that, and I think I was signed up to do that with him. And then 
when that happened with Ray, I remember like saying like I I dropped out of everything at that point. Yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't yeah. like I couldn't commit time to anything. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, so I just like bail. I just told everyone like I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Right, well, dude, this has been awesome, man. Yeah, man. I'm I'm really glad you hit me up for this. Um, it's been cool talking about all this old shit. I hope it cuts together well. Yeah, man. Absolutely. And you know, this is like the first time I can ever say this, like as a as an official plug, but Bel Air airs february 13th right on peacock february 13th everybody please watch so we can get this season two going and i can keep getting paid i'm so in on that (laughs) hank Uh, thank you man yeah no problem appreciate you awesome i'll talk to you soon all right all right that was my conversation with hank jones not enough descriptors to properly talk about how great of a time I had chatting with Hank. I learned quite a bit about work ethic and the readiness necessary to put yourself in a position to be successful in L.A. I know a handful of people from college that moved to L.A. much like Hank, and not one of them is doing what they went out there to do. So this really was the first time I've had a chance to talk to someone about this. Hearing these details was really important for me. Also, I thought the taunts of not being black enough or doing things like a quote-unquote white person was a feeling almost exclusive to me. So to hear that someone that I looked to in 12th grade to help enhance my black experience lacked his own black experience at times was very surprising. Clearly, these are events that stuck with Hank. And it's incredible that his experiences of race and status at Wizzahickon played a part in the script that helped get him hired to write for Bel Air. Full circle. Bel Air starts this Sunday, February 13th on Peacock. If you'd like to watch this conversation with Hank and myself, youtube.com slash redshirtplaya. Subscribe and rate the podcast on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And like and follow on Facebook and Instagram at We Weren't Friends in High School. In two weeks, my guest will finally be Lauren Davis. Lauren was scheduled to be the first ever guest of We Weren't Friends in High School back in 2019, but it never happened. I've also talked about Lauren in the past as the girl I ever so rudely asked to identify herself in line at graduation rehearsals because I just had never seen her before. But now I'm getting to learn all about Lauren, how she got her start at Wizzahickon, and why it is possible that I went all of high school and never knew who she was. It's a really good talk that, I'll be honest, was surprising. We talk a lot about our experiences as children of divorce and how hard it was to go on with real life while these troubles were happening at home. All right, that is it for me. I will be back in two weeks on a Monday morning with my guest, Lauren Davis. Later.